You're listening to Music Mythology. My name is Sam Romo, and let's talk about some music. Is that the one where he wore a dress? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Post Malone on lead vocal and guitar and Travis on drums and hmm. Post Malone's roommate on bass. Or- but see, like, the, even the jamming thing, because, I mean, like, Deep Elm Art Co. and a few different venues, like, they've done that where artists will come on and it's just their platform to yeah. stream with an audience. It's a cool idea. Yeah, it is, for sure. Especially if you, once you have a following, it's like, that, oh, yeah. that just keep up with you. And, yeah. And, like, like the type of, like, deadheads and, the you know, fish fans, that those are two, like, big fans. <laughs> I know that people have like an obsession with live oh, yeah. versions because they're all a little different, you know. It's like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great song. But have you listened to uh, New York in '84, March second? Yeah. No, you know, <laughs> you know, you know. I've finally gotten there. Like, I, I can hear something. I can hear a Grateful oh, yeah. Dead song now, and, mm-hmm. and I can probably tell you within about ten months when it was recorded. Mm. And I, I mean, oh, I because I, I don't really like the studio albums that much. Mm. Um, but like. 78 to 81 was like the best music they played live oh, and so okay. you can always hear it just everything's real crisp is that like the original lineup no so the they were on their second and then third keyboard they had three straight keyboardists die alcohol oh. poisoning car wreck speedball overdose oh um and then you know who their who their fourth keyboardist was yeah. it was your boy bruce hornsby yeah played keyboard for the dead mm-hmm. in the My boy. From, from like 90 to 94 who's that bruce? he yeah he he had uh the song the way it is or that's just i'm the trying way to think of like a good that's just the way yeah I'm trying to think of a good two tupac joke but i can't yeah. think of one quick enough <laughs> i think tupac learned how to rap just because bruce hornsby yeah. wrote that lick or some stupid thing like that oh <laughs> yeah he does use, yeah yeah he, does, he sampled uh, that changes but yeah I'm, I'm getting like my wife i'll have her quiz me like we're studying for something every once in a while i'm like hey just here's man, here's all through and through man. oh yeah oh i love learning and i'm <laughs> but i'll tell her i'm like okay here's all the live albums just play one song and i'm gonna see if i can guess or i'll have her get on youtube i'm like type oh, in whoa. bird song live and have it play and i'll be Dang. like i'm gonna guess january of 86 and she's like no it was november of 85 i'm like that's pretty close though yeah. Wow. Dang, man. That's gnarly. It's fun. The, the, best, the best Tupac song. Change. <laughs> For sure. But uh, I do that. We Or we've done that. Like, my wife will put my entire, like, um, phone on shuffle. And it's like like 5,000 hours of music or something <laughs> ridiculous. And then she'll just like play it for like th- two seconds max, yes. maybe one second. And I just hear the first like little part and I'm like, all right, it's McCartney. It's tug of war. It's, you know, it's like, it's, it's that track. And I'm like, I've seen yeah, radio shows do that where it's like callers. Sh- they they'll play two, Yeah. They'll play two seconds and then yeah, got a call. In I love it. I, I think, uh, yeah. What radio show here in Dallas did that? Was it, um, the Kid Craddock show? Yeah, Kid Craddock used to a long time ago. The right? Beach like, Shazam thing. Yeah. yeah. And I, I can remember. I love that challenge. Yeah. Like, I can Super remember cool. being driven to middle school, and my mom always listened to Kid Craddock because mm. yeah. she had a crush on Big Al My mom loved Kid Craddock. Kid Craddock's the one who told me about 9-11. Yeah, always my mm. claim. Yeah, I, we were listening to Kid Craddock. Mark Cuban broke the news of Kid Craddock's death. He did on Twitter. A lot of and Kid Craddock's daughter didn't like that. Yeah, well, yeah. Our fast signs did the memorial sign. Really, mm-hmm. man. Banner for the studio. And Kid Craddock, fly high, kid. Yeah, my my first like job out of college 
Um, Kid Craddock was in the basement of that building, Los Colinas. Oh, wow. Yeah. Shared an elevator with Tim Gunn one time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> While he was going to Kid Craddock. Did he judge your outfit? <laughs> yeah. I was like, good thing I dressed up today, Tim. No, it was one of those where I was just like, Tim Gunn, what's up? And he was just like, hey, how you doing? Hey, you look like shit. <laughs> and he was like going to Kid Craddock. And I was just like, oh, and that they're in the basement. He's like, yeah, yeah, just quick interview. He had like a bow tie. He was dressed to the nines, you know? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those things right when it dings and he walks off. I was like, God, I should have been like, can you just break down my outfit real quick just like shit what, are, what are the three essential male fashion tips i need to know that i'm just like totally socks, ignoring right bow tie. now you could have yeah. really trolled socks like, your lifestyle is an affront to the no, lord <laughs> yeah yeah i should have just been like is that true that no it's my brother's rumored that da, 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 da. tim gunn yeah random how did we get here i don't know kid craddock kid craddock yeah. oh, okay yeah. <laughs> but anyways um yeah, y'all ready? I'm sure. ready. Let's do it. All, All right. right. So Sam Romo here with uh, Ben and Brad. Um, y'all have anything else to add outside of your names about who you are or anything like that? Just that I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Hell yeah. Excited to be here. Just a lonely <laughs> old Fast Signs employee with Russell. <laughs> Nothing special. <laughs> Holding down downtown office. Two five six. That's all you can hope to do. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Today, going to talk about the White Album. It's my personal favorite. Beatles album, and it's the highest selling Beatles album, right? Outside of the one, the right the hits, which really surprised me. Um, right, you know, it, it was not really well represented on a lot of the great uh, greatest hits albums that were mm. released right. immediately after the breakup. Yeah, but or even on one. Well, I guess it's more like commercial success stuff. But that's the interesting thing about this is it sells the most. Maybe because of content, people are like, oh, it's got. It's a double album, you know, it's what I want, more Beatles yeah. for the price of one. But it, it's true that on the, um, I guess it would be the Blue Album, um, the com and the U.S. album, like compilations and all these little things, it's very rarely like you would get, I don't know, like Obladi Oblada, uh, which wasn't that voted like the most annoying <laughs> song of all time or it something was. in the U.K. It was, what? yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which I'd love that song. <laughs> I could see it. Mm. There was a there was a lawsuit from it, you know. A lawsuit. Yeah. Oh, because of the man that they mm -hmm. quoted it from. Yeah. Because he was a musician too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was a uh, reggae artist, and at the time, reggae was like making its way to the UK, mm. and that's that's like when you had Clapton doing "I Shot the Sheriff." Thanks kind to, of the thanks same to era. Bob, right? Yeah, Bob Morley, and and you know back then Jamaica was still a British principality. I believe yeah. uh, so. he, he toured Europe a decent amount. I think, if I recall, I think so. Bob Marley did, yeah, and Peter Tosh for that matter. Yeah, I just remember seeing a bunch of mm. concerts of him in like Munich and like random cities, like a bunch of reggae dudes in Germany. <laughs> mm. That that's interesting, yeah, because um, because um, I knew they met they met him and they knew it was like his like his catchphrase, which they admit it. I mean, they they talked about it openly but anyways i i like that song <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but uh it is very interesting that this album is um it's not it doesn't generate like a ton of like i don't know that this album is considered like like a deep track you know um, treasure chest but there's nothing that uh, you know like maybe the person that knows a handful of Beatles songs that this isn't an album that they would they would want but then it's the best selling one right and I, I, I think I think when people first get into the Beatles um, you know aside from listening to the very kind of bubblegum stuff at the beginning they they get really into Sgt. Pepper's mm. and then some people plateau at Pepper mm. and I, I, I think that 
um, kind of evolving into liking the White Album is the next step as a Beatles fan because you realize that Pepper is. I mean, it it, it kind of was like for me because when the first time I ever heard this album, so I grew up on the Beatles. My my parents they were they were you know, preachers and stuff, and didn't really play a lot of secular music around us when I was really little. But the Beatles were always around. It was just their favorite growing up, and so they 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 kept it to the 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 early stuff the really like just i want to hold your hand let me do the simple stuff and then um when i was like a 12 13 then my dad was like all right so yeah here's the post you know here's the, the second half of the 60s where things got weird and Lucy, like changed yeah <laughs> and and then he he bought when they started re-releasing these on cd like on the double the double remaster c uh sets this was the only one he bought and I was totally like, it was alien to me because I was like, I get it's the Beatles, but what is this album? You know, I thought just even me totally unaware and seeing it as a white blank album. I thought it was uh, an outtake, a, um, a compilation, you know, just some kind of like just to, let's throw some stuff together. Because even when you know, listen to it the first time kind of feels like that you're just like wow this is kind of bopping well i mean the, the beginning of it is really cohesive it flows pretty right. well but once you really digest the entire thing you're like this thing is just like it's a little schizo it's just like you're you're in every genre and you're 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 switching it up it's like what who are these other voices i'm hearing you know what are these weird effects and stuff it's not it's totally different and that is what gave me like for me personally it was like my first leg up on a musical appreciation of the Beatles. Cause it wasn't just like their, their pop successes. It was like, this is the, the, I don't know, the lengths of their creativity and, and, and just, just the bounds of where it could go. And I was just unaware, you know, and it was amazing to, to hear, you know, a fully story driven song, you know, like, um, um, bungalow bill or a Rocky raccoon. Like that was as a kid, that was, it was appealing. It was easy. That was, it was, it was nice to listen and, and appreciate, but I could tell it was a little bit different. It wasn't just like a little, like, this is how I feel. It was like, here's a whole story that this happened and that, and that, and that, and that. And yeah. That. It, it was, it was kind of a, a precursor to the big singer songwriter movement of the early seventies, where you saw people like Jim Croce and Gordon Lightfoot, um, and even Neil Young's solo career to some extent. Um, Oh, he was Beatles obsessed. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, all, all those, the, the Brad and I were talking about that on the way here, the, all those Laurel Canyon guys. Um, yeah. But especially I mean, Neil. But especially Neil. Neil had that, that, that thread in his creative niche that was just always competitive. It's like, I want to be the next sound, but I'm watching these guys. You know, <laughs> it's like when, when Sergeant Pepper came out, you know, what was it, like four, four to six months later, uh, Buffalo Springfield again comes out and... Neil's Neil did um, expecting to fly all on his own, and that's straight up like a day in the life. Like it's like the cousin of that song. Oh yeah, because it's 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 beautiful and it's more about the depths and intensity of love. But it's got these, the it's bookended by these you know orchestral like intense moments and just crazy pans and like it's weird studio mumbo jumbo. He's he's getting in there and he's working his mojo off of what he heard from the album, and that's what made Sergeant Pepper different. Is it's just heavy studio studio work, you know, just right. super complex of just not, not just let's figure out a good tune. Let's like, let's play some things in weird timing. Let's put some stuff in reverse, but in the background, just subtle. And just, there's, there's such little bitty things that built this, you know, it's like, it's, it's like, it's building a house. It's like you're adding little things and all of a sudden you got this full 
full project. That's just amazing. It's hard to explain because it's just taken a long time to build it. You know, you can't explain it easily because it's not easy to do. Exactly. And, it, and you know, the, and the Beatles pioneered uh, making the soundboard another instrument, basically, mm. through through that type of manipulation. And, um, you know, it they started experimenting with that with Rubber Soul. It went through Revolver. It hit its peak in the Pepper slash Mystery Tour, Magical Mystery Tour sessions. Yeah. And then I think starting with this album and and... Uh, more specifically, the trip to India that led to a lot of this album. I think they realized it's like, okay, well, that's something that we can do, um, but we also don't want to stray too far from just putting good music out. Yeah, um, and that's you know one thing that I really think about this album is I think it helped them get grounded again after kind of really experimenting a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I'd say that like, it's a profound idea. I mean, everyone thinks that, but, <laughs> um, profound to you. Yeah, I suppose so. But, um, if you're hearing it for the first time, that was completely my idea, but no one's ever said it before. But uh, if, you, if you're not hearing that for the first time, you know that I'm, I'm not, I'm not a prophet or anything. I mean, that's, that's widely, uh, uh documented And and, but I, I mean, I think that was the time to change. I'm, I don't know how you feel, but I, I think if they had made another, truly psychedelic album where they were really manipulating the soundboard and mm-hmm. using a lot of the technology. I mean, I think it probably would have been considered overkill by a lot of yeah. people in retrospect. Or I think they would have accidentally overkilled it themselves exactly by, by doing stuff like, and I know, I know people have a avant-garde appreciation for revolution number nine, but I feel like that is the kind of stuff that it would evolve into that eclectic really progressive like i don't know you know it's just like what what is that like oh that's that's the whole point and it's like no okay hold on but i think they might have um what's the best way i think they were kind of checked a little bit because of the the lack of success by the magical mystery uh tour movie specifically because that was exactly that it was an art piece it was just like this you know fully eclectic weird thing that they were like yeah and then that and then that and then you said you didn't like that right um it's just it's just weird like it's it's got parts i do like but it's not it's i don't know it's just a weird trip it is and and it has almost nothing to do with the music itself and and uh, i mean the bbc got complaints and and, i mean i realize any television network is going to get complaints anytime there's anything on tv right but um when they released it like the day after christmas well yeah that's the yeah it was was, what what year did it come out uh, 67 yeah it was like they were having their boxing day tea and just trying to (laughs) oh and it came out in black and white though right across the tv and so it, it did not translate because all these psychedelic colors and patterns and stuff and just visually interesting things were just muted. Yeah. That's and, well, it's and, almost a waste to sign yeah. pointless. Well, it, it was the Beatles. And, so, and they yeah. but they had that knowledge. And and I don't I don't know the real number off the top of my head, but it was something like um like I think it was only forty five percent of all British households had a color television. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. it wasn't just the technology of the shooting and of the BBC's broadcasting. I mean, they could have broadcasted it in brilliant color, and you know, forty five out of a hundred people wouldn't have been able to appreciate it, regardless. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And now the BBC just said, "Well, in that case, let's just let no one uh, enjoy it," <laughs> and released it in black and white. But yeah, I mean. Plus, like Brad said, um, you know, day after Christmas coming. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Like Sam said, appreciate appreciate that. Um, 
you know, um, and I don't, you know, and it's not like, oh man, the people weren't ready for that, man. It was, <laughs> it was weird. It, it was, it was weird. weird. And, and I, I think, I think, yeah, again, I think it checked them. I think I do too. Cause, cause, cause they had the weird successes in it. You know, like, like, I mean, like the, the album, the album itself is amazing. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful, great. crazy album. But, but yeah, I, I think that that was kind of the, um, the negotiation of like, we'll make an album collection of Magical Mystery Tour, and it's great as a piece of work, a musical work, but we can't go too far because if right. we get, if we, because we're realizing that if we don't keep it a little more cohesive, uh, the, the following is going to start to dissipate and and we, we can't do that because one this is also the white album would be the first album underneath their own record label so i think that was another thing is that they were trying to be careful and it's like okay we can't just take a giant swing on this weird project let's build something that's got some oomph behind it some um proven you know formulaic well, not really formulaic, but you know, the sound, the normal rock sound. Because um, I mean, it does. It bounces between like older sounding songs, like you know, like Good Night, um, and then, uh, but then you have uh, super hard rock songs like Helter Skelter and Your Blues, and it's just all over the place. Yeah, and then you, even the kind of baroque sounding harpsichord and piggies. Yeah, uh, the the kind of beer hall music and Honey Pie and the weird. Uh, experimental stuff of wild honey pie, which yeah. never, I, I will never, ever, ever, ever in my life understand why they named those two songs so similarly. But well, it's just, I feel like this is McCartney's pumping stuff out. Yeah, that's all it was. When I also feel like this was him, I feel like this was the beginning, and this might, I have no, I don't really have a confirmation. It's just a, a feeling, <clears throat> but I feel like because you know, he was, he, he wasn't super like attached at the hip with Linda yet, but they were dating right. and so i feel like that might have been like the beginning of that kind of american country vibe that he really fed off of with her when they had their farm home when they were writing for ram writing for mccartney writing for wings first album it, it feels like the beginnings of that um because it is that kind of like weird like what is that it's almost country but it's like this weird i don't know what that is but it's just mccartney kind of taking little bits of these things and making it his own little rocky folky thing but it's still weird you got to add the different you know thread and to all of it um but um but anyways the, the variety though is insane on the what did you tell me about helter skelter that one time you said it was like the first not like metal oh, song yeah, but a, it was like the yeah, it was considered like, like the, the first, first like one of the first like hard rock hard rock yeah. songs but, i mean yeah. a, a lot of heavy people rock. consider it that way something yeah. something stood out about that song see i hear helter skelter i think of charles manson like right away mm. i don't think about the beatles first i think of but he got that from the beatles right right yeah, yeah. from a misinterpretation on the yeah song. clear clear misinterpretation <laughs> far mis yeah I don't, I don't even know if interpretation i i, I think he was just uh, he was projecting his own stupid mm. you know yeah. He he wanted to project this. Oh yeah, there's going to be a race war, and it's all going to be lots of lots of acid involved in that yeah, decision. I don't know. It's 
how did the Beatles think about that? Is it, do they ever oh, say? Was, like, oh, they were all for it. They were like, man, we love Charles. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually glad. Are you no, saying where did they get the, the name? No, no, no. Like, I wonder if they heard that Charles Manson oh, referred I'm, to Helter Skelter and all his trials. I'm sure. And stuff. But, it, it, but it, it's from like old writings. Like, it was a phrase. Used. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I know. Yeah, I just wonder if, like, it, it's kind of like when Neil Young heard about his. Uh, Kurt Cobain using his line mm-hmm. in his suicide note, and that like you can't cuss on this. Right? <laughs> no, you can't. can I cuss? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Fucked with uh, <laughs> with uh, Neil's head that. You know that that it was in that. So I wonder if the Beatles heard that Charles Manson like took that from Helter Skelter, and they're like, "Ugh, it's not what we meant." Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and maybe Manson was attracted. I mean, again, who knows how coherent he was when he was thinking of these things? But maybe it was just the tones, like literally, yeah. like the vibrations of the songs that were like, "Yeah, it's like it's the madness." And yeah. It's like that's the chaos because that's maybe, what that's yeah. what because that's what that song I mean exudes. It's a cool it's chaos, song, yeah. yeah. Especially like the ending. It's just so like punk just like the, the madness and the who, who wrote that as paul and uh, and and i think i mentioned this on the last podcast but it's one of my favorite like breakdowns of kind of that genius of how he would write and compose songs as you look at helter skelter which is it's literally about i think it was a ride in the uk uh amusement park or something yeah and he it's about going on a slide and, and in some i mean there's other things he talks about but the gist of it is that just that you're going on a thrilling ride yeah and then super cool but it's a heavy song i mean it's a heavy written composed song over like a pretty simple song um, you know um, concept but then you parallel that to like maxwell silver hammer on abbey road <laughs> and you got this like you know like light-hearted like nah, 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 nah. and he's talking me? about a murderer who did you mm-hmm. tell me was like some, another artist wrote a song like helter skelter that was like their interpretation of that do you oh, remember what i'm talking about no it was like it was like someone else Oh, maybe it'll come to me later. When you, you, Helter Skelter itself. Um, oh, when when it was like why it was written. Yeah. I think I mentioned that. It's because yeah. Pete Townsend told That's McCartney right. that he, he had just written the hardest hitting song. That's which, what it was. Yeah. I can see, I can see for miles. miles. Yeah. yeah. And McCartney's like, mm, you're not doing that. That's <laughs> yeah. me sucking. That's yeah. my job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I caused the paradigm shift. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I have, um, uh, you know, I mean, getting into the, the thought process of a madman is a fool's errand but I, I you know like i've told my wife if i ever um look like i'm about to chisel a swastika into my forehead <laughs> she can she can i mean I'm, i might blame it on the beatles if i feel like it yeah. like manson did yeah, but you, you know I've, I've told her like if i ever get to that point please did he take me to a hospital beatles? like in his yeah reasoning he yeah he did he said that i remember all the clips of him and like during the trial was when they'd ask him straight up and he would mention helter skelter yeah. like now it's uh. it's Paul's fault for advocating murdering people at Sharon Tate's <laughs> house. He was but. a he was a big big Beatles person. <laughs> hmm. But see, but I don't know because I I I feel like that that's got to be what it is. Is I don't know. Again, like I don't know if it was what he was on the the state of mind he was in, but maybe it was literally just the energy of the song that he was feeling. Yeah. And he liked the he he thought the concept of that chaos represented in an art form was like it was just so palpable. It was just amazing to him. It was like just, yeah. Is interesting. And he was like a wannabe singer songwriter. That's right. At the well, time, did, did you know he he uh, he 
demoed a couple of songs he for did. Neil Young. He did, yeah. And and then like I think it was like the year after that or six months later was like the first time he popped up in the news. Neil and that's Ryan. why they chose Sharon Tate's house was because like Dennis Wilson used to live in that house, and mm. he like gave him his demos. And Dennis Wilson was like, "These suck." Yeah, he's like, "These are terrible. I don't want to wow. do anything with this." And then he that like aided him that Dennis Wilson was like, "This is wow. worthless." Which was it? Was it Carl Wilson that ended up joining up? I don't want to disparage Carl Wilson, but you know, one of the Beach Boys joined the Manson movement. Oh, oh, oh I was like, I didn't know that. I know Dennis yeah. Wilson at one time was like f- kind of friends with him before he knew like deeply about what he was about. Just like surface party friends, I think. Yeah, but I think one of them was was. Maybe I'm wrong with this. Uh, I, mean, I mean, not uh, don't be wrong. I'm not trying to implicate the Beach Boys mm-hmm. in a murder or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, they're definitely separate. <laughs> yeah, we need a Jamie wasn't Manson him. kind of in the yeah, scene. I mean, he was 100 percent in the LA 60 yeah. scene. Yeah, and he was he was yearning to be a, an artist. Yeah, but he just like wasn't good enough. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, it's one of my favorite Neil Young songs, um, "Revolution Blues" off of "On the Beach." That is here. a good one. That, that is it's about Manson. Oh, well, it's wow. about a lot of things, but <laughs> but it's because uh, he he wrote. I think like the year after he realized like that's the dude yeah. you know yeah yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, it's yeah. a it's a very interesting song it's got a very good guitar a really cool guitar solo at the very end it's it's, it's very I don't know it's like a high energy song it's like you it's not it's not like hard hitting but it's like you just feel like the movement the momentum behind it it's very interesting very weird yeah it does kind of get in your bones I told him a hundred times he needs to watch that last waltz because oh, yeah. I just think he'd love it. And- I used to watch it every Thanksgiving. That yeah. was that was a thing oh, yeah. I did. Nice. Uh, I haven't done it because my wife has a terrible taste in music. <laughs> I I would be worried, but she's never going to listen to this. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we'll edit that now. <laughs> no, she uh, she she just she's not into it, and I don't want to force her to sit through two and a half hours of <laughs> like a lot of Robbie Robertson and yeah. stuff. She's not going to like it. Yeah. So. But I told him about the Neil and the, the Coke and having to Photoshop it. Marty yeah. says he had to. Yeah, they it. did airbrush mm. that out in the 70s, which was like a two year project. Yeah, you're right. It's like frame by frame. Yeah, pushed, it, pushed the release a year. Painting frame by frame. Yeah. They should have left it in there. It gives him more character. I, I just mean, say it was a lighting problem. Yeah. It's just <laughs> the light that's just shining on his nose. It's a little weird. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, Martin Scorsese directed The Last Walls. Right. So I, I don't think anyone would have been surprised. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think it would have been like, man, that. That crew's using drugs. Yeah. I can't believe that. We, we talked about Friday when I was Wikipedia because I remember Stephen told me that um, you know our, our good friend Stephen known as shout out shout out if it was live him and Bill would be watching uh, that him uh, Marty Scorsese and Robert Robbie Robertson were really good friends the lead mm-hmm. singer of the band and like Levon Helm had a real problem with the fact that like the band itself wasn't shown that much that it was more about like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and they just left out like the keyboardist and he had a problem with that yeah. but well, Levon Helm just wanted to he wanted to play at the beach at the Lake of the Ozarks yeah that's all he ever wanted yeah yeah he was from Arkansas or Missouri something like he, that he was from Arkansas yeah was in Arkansas the second most famous person from Arkansas yeah um I do really want to bring up that none of those people we just mentioned are on the white album or affiliated with it. <laughs> yeah, so. anyway, Back to- <laughs> but you know what? Eric Clapton was part of the last waltz and boom, we're right back to the mm-hmm. white album. There, yeah. we go. Eric. there we go. Well, and a beach boy, this is we're talking about his involvement uh, or their involvement too. There's a beach boy was involved in, uh, back in the U S USSR. That's true. Um, which is the first track on the white album. See, that's what I think of when I hear the white album. That's the only song I 
mm. really pops in yeah. cause, just because I was on the the, uh, the one. Mm, yeah. 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 And that's funny you mentioned your mom, your parents being cool with that because I think that's one of the main reasons my mom was cool with that because it was no cussing. Yeah. It's just going to be like lighthearted, clean quick, clean rock and yeah. real quick little ditties and she didn't have to worry about any secular yeah. vibes creeping in. <laughs> but, you know, it is funny back in the USSR, I, I always wondered, I mean, I mean, I knew it was kind of a parody of that style, mm-hmm. you know, um, I didn't realize how intentional of a parody I, it was, I guess, or, or how, how layered the parody was. I mean, because it wasn't just the musical styles that were being parodied, but, uh, you know, McCartney has said that he thought the kind of overt saccharine patriotism in Chuck Berry songs and the Beach Boy songs. Like, you know, you can travel all over the world, but nothing will ever feel as good as the U.S. of A. I mean, he thought, like a lot of Europeans do, that that was just kind of a stupid point of view to have. And so he wrote this song, like, can you imagine how the Americans would react, you know, if comrade so-and-so, if comrade Radulov wrote a song about, you know, being on the beaches of Lake Baikal or something like that. And, um, I, it, it was just surprising because Paul McCartney has this kind of, you know, effervescent, effervescent personality where he's just like, Oh, I don't want to offend anyone, blah, blah, blah. And then he writes that song. It's a giant middle finger to us patriotism. (laughs) Now he's an artist. Like, I'm not going to be like, and that's why I never listened to him again. But, uh, (laughs) you know, it is kind of funny how, how deep the parody went there though. Yeah. Well, the, and the beach boy, I'm forgetting which one was it. Mark love. Is that Mike 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 love? He, uh, I think he's the one that suggested because he was a part of the Maharishi right. um, um, camp or yeah, group, the, re- the retreat, the retreat, and and I think he was the one that suggested the Russian angle. I think so. Yeah, really. That's yeah, maybe maybe he was enlightened and realized how much of a parody they were or what they were doing, and he was like, "Hmm, you could mess with that." Well, and, and you know, by then the Beach Boys, uh, like the Beatles, you know, the Beach Boys had evolved. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't just like, "Hey, let's hop in the Roadster and go out to Santa Monica." You know, you know, by that time, Pet Sounds was out. Uh, was the Smiley Smile recordings were being worked on, and it was. Uh, more complicated, deeper, more meaningful music. And, and yeah, I mean, if, if you look at Pet Sounds and you listen to Wouldn't It Be Nice, it's still a radio hit, but it's not, hey, I'm going to grab my best girl and throw her in my convertible and go get a burger and a milkshake at a yeah. drive-in. Classic. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, there's there's more poetic, poetic stuff in it. Um, like I'm trying to, man, I'm trying to think of... Um, like I, I just wasn't made for these times. Oh, that's yeah. one of my favorite. It is. Songs. I mean, that I, I mean, you know, I know this is a Beatles thing, but I, I mean, first off, Brian Wilson is just a genius. I mean, oh, that, that, I, that's his uh, mind is just all over the it, place. It is. All the it's time. on a completely different frequency than humans. And, uh, you know, he wrote that he wrote God only knows and then didn't sing that one. He had Carl Wilson sing that one, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I just wasn't made for these times is, I mean, it's, it's a great song. It's introspective and vulnerable in a way not yeah. to sound too pretentious about it, but yeah. Well, that was kind of the, that interesting thing about that era of music, especially that Laurel Canyon pursuit is everyone was working on poetry like this such an intense expression not just like 
what's a good hook? What's a good yeah. like way to tell this girl that I want to take her out? And it was like, no, it's like, let's, let's talk about, you know, social dynamics or I don't know. You know what I mean? Get a oh, little, yeah. get a little deeper than just yeah. typical. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, there were a few people, um, you know, Brian Wilson is, is obviously one, uh, Bob Dylan is another one. These are super controversial takes I'm making obviously, but, uh, you know, th- that were transcendent enough to be the poets and the musicians, mm. but, you know, you had on the, on the heels of that, you had people like, um, you know, the Grateful Dead and Elton John, people that, that were songwriting teams in a different way than Lennon and McCartney were. Cause you know, largely they wrote their own work and just credited the other, mm. but you know, like in the Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia wrote the music and Bob Hunter wrote the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with Elton John, Elton John wrote the music and Bernie Taupin wrote the lyrics. And, mm-hmm. and in the 60s, especially in the Canyon scene, um, you know, you had a few of those guys that were kind of transcendent enough to do everything on their own. Um, and I don't know if the drugs they were taking were just better or probably, uh, probably. <laughs> or whatever it was. But it, but it is kind of interesting. And, and I do think that the White Album, in some respects, reflects that, uh, mainly with uh, John's works, because they're a little bit, you know, they're less surface oriented well, than the, Paul's. I, well, this is like the beginning of him getting out of his like nonsense period. Exactly. Because he was so, I mean, that was always John's like persona after the middle, middle of the sixties, he was over the fame, you know, that's why they didn't tour. That's why, you know, it's just like, like, get me out of here. I just want to make my art and like do that. And so you get the, um, Sergeant Pepper period where he, it's like the start of him talking about stuff that's not, you know doesn't completely make sense all the time and then you get the magical mystery tour where you're just you know really out there well he was purposely writing nonsensical stuff because yeah. he found out like certain people i mean he, there's already critics but then he even found out i think like oxford had some kind of like writing course where they were breaking down the, the, the lyrics of lyrics. linen yeah. yeah and he's like no 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 yeah <laughs> don't do that <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna not make this make any so sense it's, and it's like they good. got less pc over their career it seems like well, especially john though because yeah, right, yeah. john was was all on the commercial groove of music yeah and they got their fame fame started getting annoying uh he's like i'm still gonna be here in the limelight but i'm gonna be more of what i want to be okay right and then epstein dies they start to make their own label and so like i feel like that's what the magical mystery and, and sergeant pepper is for him it's like it's like that angsty period for him it's like that's I'm going through this York? divorce uh i think so i think it's pre, like this is pre-new york yeah, or I guess I the, think. The, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Because he moved to New York in like in the set, like seventy. No, seventy. It, it, it was like sixty nine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like right thing. after the recording of Abbey Road. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I, I think he was already in New York when Let It Be was released. Because mm. that was recorded before Abbey Road, but was released yeah. in nineteen seventy yeah. afterwards. I told you Brent has been inside Abbey Road Studios. Have you? Has he? Yeah. yeah. He yeah won won some like raffle. He cut a track. <laughs> right. Yeah. No way. Want, but, yeah, um, wasted it. Wasted a ticket. <laughs> but uh, but no. So I I just feel like this one definitely 
particularly for John, it's, it's his, and this, I also feel like it's his renaissance with Yoko and, and, and the, the, um, the retreats and like getting a new perspective on life sure. and, and, um, you know, post-divorce, like really figuring himself out, getting out of angsty period of just like, Oh, there's so much out of my control. There's so yeah. much. It's just like, they think they know me, but they don't. So I'm just going to show them nonsense. You know, it's going to be beautiful nonsense. But it's oh, nonsense. Yeah. And then this album is like, okay, uh, we're steering our ship again, um, full creative time. We're doing whatever we want. Uh, I can even bring in my girl and she can help me out. <laughs> and so he's like, all right, let's talk about some heavy things. Let's, let's make some, some, um, some good rock, but let's also, let's get more serious. Let's get back to some, some serious stuff, but there's still the nonsense, just some, somewhat nonsense of like, you know, happiness is a warm gun was just stuff right. that and glass onion. Yeah. Is he just wanted to, um, kind of flex his creative muscles while just working with interesting topics and, and, and not even topics or full stories, just, just lines of text because like, or titles, you know, like, like happiness is a warm gun. They saw that in a, in a magazine and yeah, he just thought that was a magazine. Yeah. And he just thought that was such a, such a one, such an American thing, yeah. <laughs> but this, he was just so enthralled by this, like, Wow, what a statement. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like to picture him going into a McDonald's and someone left an NRA magazine, like in a booth at McDonald's. <laughs> it's, you know, served him a light beer, um, even though those hadn't been around yet. But guns no, are I, pretty American. I, I have always, I've always thought, well, always, um, like I was born with it. But since I have gotten into the Beatles, I, I've always kind of thought the Magical Mystery Tour, Sgt. Pepper era, that's kind of like when you're 18 and you listen to Dashboard Confession and smoke clove cigarettes. And then you talking about yourself or I'm, I mean, Hypo no, hypothetical we're talking here. No comment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> no. And then the white album is like when you go to college and you kind of create mm. this new version of yourself. It's like, you know, yourself yeah. or you, you, you think, you know, yourself. yeah, Brad, you know, we used to call Brad Robert in high school. He didn't become Brad. Till college. No, I'm just kidding. He's always been Brad, but yeah. That'd be cool. No, it's a, if I get old, real old, post seventy, I'll be Robert. No, but you know, I, I knew out with Robert. one of one of my very best friends. He was always Donnie, and then we got to college, and he was Don. Don. Yeah, mm. I love that. It's like kids that are bit go by Billy or like or William when yeah. they're an adult, they're Bill. No, yeah, Bill. Yeah. And that's and, but that's kind of how I see this album. This is this oh, is yeah. like freshman year yeah. of college. Well, they, John Lennon's creativity. <laughs> well, for all of them, because yeah, well, yeah, I mean, particularly, um, I mean, they they were all branching out into um, different groups, mingling with all these other eclectic, interesting people. Whether they were you know just uh, design artists like the Fool, or um, or musicians, you know, like you know, like George linking up with Clapton and 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 bringing Clapton onto the freaking album, you know, it's just it's crazy. Um and uh who else? Uh, uh Donovan was a big part of the India trip. You know, they were hanging out with Donovan a lot and mm. and, and Donovan uh you know some people uh, have referred to him as the Scottish Bob Dylan. I think that's being a little generous, um, <laughs> or, or a little disparaging to Bob Dylan. No, no, no offense intended to Donovan. Uh, you know, Donovan, when you absolutely hundred percent listen to this, please know I wasn't trying to offend you <laughs> when, um, when he listens, Yeah, when he listens, but you know, but they were hanging out with Donovan and Donovan had this kind of folksy, um, you know, Bob Dylan, Nick Drake, Jimmy Spheris kind of feel to him. And he hung out with the Beatles, in particular Paul and George, and had a lot of influence on them. And, uh, you know, Paul ended up 
kind of taking these sweet, kind of fun, easy to listen to melodies. Now, George took it more to heart and, and, you know, he wrote a lot of what would become all things must pass during this time. And so I I think that George probably had the most prolific, um, Well, his growth. commitment to that religion was pretty exactly pretty obvious. Yeah. Was it just Hindu? Was the religion it was technically? Mm, yeah. Well, it, it really wasn't. I mean, it was kind of pseudo religious, but it was really the practice of transcendental mes- uh, meditation. Mm, yeah. um, and it was it was in a Hindu environment. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, to me, it would be like taking a meditation class that happens to be held in a church. Yeah. Well, and he also, he saw, you know, flaws in like the Catholic church. And, and then when he went with Maharishi and they saw the flaws of him like as an individual. So, and then he kind of pulled himself back again and, right. and then, you know, and he, he had his own personal issues too with drugs and a lot of dead things. But I just feel like he, that was kind of the pattern of George was not, not necessarily he found the, the right path or religion or whatever, but he just became a little more self-aware. Like every time he would come into a realm of like a new understanding. He's like, oh, okay, I'll take these parts and I'll keep moving. And it, and it had a really great, um, I, I think, <laughs> I think it had a really, um, mark marked effect on how he lived his life. Because one of my favorite stories about George is, is, you know, he was married to Patty Boyd at the time. And uh, Patty Boyd and Eric Clapton, shortly after the recording of this album, uh, started having an affair. And George and Eric Clapton were very good friends. And, uh, you know, Patty kind of just moved out and started living with Eric and stuff. And one day, Clapton was over at Eric's house. I mean, at George's house. And George said, well, uh, are you going to marry Patty? And Clapton said, well, yeah, I'd like to. And George goes... Well, I guess I better divorce her then. And and, and that was it. That was, I mean, that's so weird. Yeah. He filed for divorce. Oh, Texan came out filed. He filed filed. for divorce. Um, and you know, and then Eric Clapton, and Patty Boyd did get married, uh, and they live very happily ever after for about five years. And mm. what a, I, what a friendship that they just, that, I know that open that like, and, and they stayed friends until George yeah. died. I mean, it, it did not affect. Yeah. Well, and, but George also made some kind of, uh, maybe not a hint. I know maybe he had requests for that thing with that. Uh, Cause Clapton was with Patty's sister. Right? right. Right. And so I think they were trying to do some kind of swap thing yeah <laughs> and then it I just like 60s or then right. it just kind of just didn't pan out i guess for george and george like yeah well and you know Ring- right. ringo ringo's wife maureen had an affair with george uh that ringo i mean literally walked in on oh, like wow. i mean like the first scene of a movie or something yeah <laughs> right you know ringo walks in is like honey i'm home they let me write a song today and <laughs> <laughs> it's about an octopus i love it and yeah i mean he found george and maureen together and and and, you know, I, I think such was the dynamic at the time that Ringo was like, well, I guess we're all on this planet for one thing. And, and you know, it just kind of peace and love. Peace yeah, and love. yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, he still wishes for peace and love every birthday. And I never can no, afford that. He, so. he signs off on every tweet like that. I know. I love your Ringo <laughs> accent. It goes a little deeper. Yeah. Well, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, it still had the kind of Liverpoolian. Yeah, you're good at yeah, yeah. Wait, to it. so when did Patty and George split up? Because she was I, in the something music video. She was, and I I want to say it was like seventy one, seventy two. Oh, okay. uh, but but I think it started um, like late sixty eight, sixty nine. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Oh yeah, but this album has just so many influences because uh, and I mean you could say that with each uh, sure. additional album because you're like oh they, they now they met this guy and now this you know now the doors existed and then they met you know right you know there's so many things that could add it and just stagger it and you you extrapolate it and you're like oh yeah look this guy crazier and crazier <laughs> but with this one I mean this is just such a it was a huge shift from yeah. the psychedelic yeah uh, the pure psychedelic well, one thing and like what and like what you're just kind of what we we're just detailing is it it has a different feel to it because it has this like mature music awareness kind of deal where none of these songs now i know you got problems with wild honey pie and <laughs> over the over the dawn and they're out they're out there but like they're they you know most of, i'll just put it that way most of the album really hits true it comes through with a, a feeling that they're really going for and and they're just masters at communicating you know in oh, that yeah. in that way absolutely and and with this album it just it definitely does it feels much more like you're getting um because i mean at this point i mean what let's see at this point this is 67 so they're like 27 like 26 well i guess they're all different ages but they're all around 26 27 yeah i mean that's because ringo uh, I think is the oldest, the oldest yeah. and, and, you know, he was born in 1940, like in July, maybe. And, yeah. then, and then John was October of 1940. And then Paul and George were younger. George, uh, George might've been born in like 43. So, I mean, he might've been literally like 24, 25. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is just which is ridiculous when you yeah. think about it. And especially when you, when you look back at like, as I brought this up before, but it, to me, it's just incredible, especially as like a modern music listener. That you you follow some per, some people like I'm just gonna throw out random people, um, the Foo Fighters, um, Coldplay, Jay Z. I mean any of these people. It takes a few years. You're, it's become normal to wait three years for an album, and whoa, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. But then back then it was like six months. You're on contract. Pump it out. Oh, yeah. it out. Pump it out. out. You're touring. Pump it out. Well, they, you know they were also dealing with the uh, juxtaposition between. Parlophone, their first label, mm. Apple Music, their second label, and then uh, they had uh, Capital had yeah. the distribution EMI. rights in the U.S. EMI, yeah, yeah through EMI, yeah. and um, you know, having to um, appease three different sets of people, especially with the Parlophone people. You know, they they still had distribution contracts with Parlophone after they had left, mm. and so. You know, you're having to fulfill those duties. Now, they didn't have to tour or anything anymore, but, you know, uh, Parlophone briefly had rights to their merchandising. And so you could buy an you could buy the White Album with proceeds going to Apple, and then you would buy a Beatles lunchbox with proceeds going to Parlophone. Mm, yeah. Which is not ideal. No, no. <laughs> well, and that's what... I, I, well, and I feel like their breakup and their corporate or not like corporate, but their business, um, 
experiences on the public scale kind of gave people, I mean, they did this a lot because of their notoriety, insight into the industry, insight to the complexities of what's going on. It's like, well, why, right. why aren't you touring? You know, that's what everybody does. But because, man, <laughs> I can't, I can't hear myself when I'm playing. I'm like, oh, that's crazy. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, but you start to hear these stories and you start realizing, you know, you, you evolve as an, as an appreciator of what they're doing and what the craft really is. And then when you look at those videos of, of them um, breaking up and just the, the mountains of papers and, you know, the, like the famous video where you showed George and he's like, I don't even know what I'm signing anymore. He's like, yeah. I've been signing <laughs> all day. I don't even know what it says anymore. I'm just trying to get out. Yeah. Which and, I, I would be remiss to mention that I am an attorney and, and when clients say that to me, it really pisses me off. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what this is. Well, don't you pay a lawyer to sign all that stuff? To, well, you read the fine print. You, you, you pay the lawyer yeah, to, to read, read it. it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And they bust out the stack. I, I charge $5 a word. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> For master comprehension. Yeah, right. I mean, for instance, this says on. Does it really mean on? Yeah, right. Hey, I'm just kidding. There are certain contracts where you, it's like, now what does that word mean? You think it means that, but it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't. Sometimes <laughs> and means yes, or. lawyers, right? Yeah, I mean, that's redundant. Yeah, what do you, what do you, call, a, what do you call a bus of lawyers going off a cliff? A head start. Good. I, I don't think of a good start. Yeah. Head start. Maybe start. it is a head start. Head start. Either way. Um, no, I tell people you don't realize how much you don't like lawyers until you become one. They're, they're the worst. My wife's a lawyer and my business partner is a lawyer. And those are the only two lawyers I like. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it close. Yeah. I, well, and my father-in-law, you if wanna, you're you listening. Wanna, you want to plug your uh, plug out where I go? Yeah, shooter and AG Law Group. There you go. Um, Everyone listening. Injury and auto. No, what no. Yeah, don't call me if you're in a car wreck. I don't want to deal with that. But, you know, Will's business stuff. What's the first uh, Beatles riff y'all learned on guitar? Oh. Do you recall? Um, no, I would have mine. It was easy. It's just the opening to, um, uh, and I love her. Dun, 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 dun. I, I learned the chord progression for when I'm 64. That was, that was one of the first, uh, and it's got, it's got something weird in it that I wasn't used to like a, like a G seven or a C seven or a B minor or something that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just G, C and D. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, although those were in there, but you know, yeah. But um, I'd say though, um, I mean, as a young kid, I was obsessed with a lot of songs, like everybody does. They, they, you know, obsessed. But this album though was the first full album of the Beatles that I had ever come to appreciate. Not just on a, not even just appreciate on a, on a, the full scale, but um, it's actually my first experience with a full album was this album, mm. um, which is it's a very interesting album to have that first yeah, step to take wild, you know, with. Because uh, I mean, because I because I I, th I tried to think back. And I'm like, no, it's like, I know I listened to help like when I was growing up, but I, I watched the movie a ton and I knew all the hits. But then when I listened to the full album, I was like, um, like, what's a song I, I, I never knew of until like a few years ago when I had listened to it you know, all the way through. Right. Um, um, oh, it's going to bug me. I would like, tell me what you see. Um, and, um, um, or like a uh, hard day's night, like the, I saw the movie a billion times and I knew a lot of the songs off of it, but then I listened to the full album, you know, in my later teens and I'm like, Oh my God, there's, there's more stuff. There's more great stuff in that same line of thinking. Cause I just, I, you know, as a uh, casual music listener, as a young kid, that's just what, that is just whatever was around is what I appreciated. But this was the first 
swing at like, whoa, this album is nuts. You oh, know, yeah. and I want to keep coming back to it. I put that on shuffle because it doesn't really matter what's going to happen because you never know what you're going to get. Even when you play it through, it's not it's not linear it's not you know super stacked or conceptual it's just it's just sensational it's just all over the place i, I will say if you put it on shuffle and the first song you hear is good night that is a real bummer <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, I, that's true i i will restart it if that happens like because i'm with you with the exception of good night yeah like if good night comes on first i'm like ah. yeah revolution number nine you know but i can power through that one but oh, yeah. I, when i hear good night like i want to take some melatonin and lie down. <laughs> <laughs> I, and wasn't it, that uh, which written, was the intended? Wasn't intended. That, yeah? Wasn't it written as a bedtime song for Julian? It was. Yeah, it was. It, it and it was. I, I could be wrong here, um, but I, I think it was one of the first songs that was written specifically with Ringo in mind as the singer, because Ringo had mostly right, sung covers. Right. I remember that because it was his uh, tone of voice that yeah. they thought would fit the kind of old school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, when I was a kid and I'd watch reruns of Thomas the Tank Engine and Ringo was Mr. Oh, Conductor, yeah. Yeah, it was right. it was a great segue right into nap time. So, you, um, you know, <laughs> full circle. Yeah, they uh, setting them up with his animation career exactly john lennon had incredible foresight there one day you're gonna have a career on pbs you're yeah. gonna be known for trains <laughs> of course george carlin was also mr conductor and he had the seven words you can't say on tv or radio routine so i, I guess personality doesn't really matter no. i guess it was really the producers of thomas the train that knew what was up yeah they, they, they must yeah. have those folks at shining time station are pretty shining bright time oh my god dude i've thought about that since yeah. early, early 90s no, it came on right after yeah. reading rainbow with lavar lavar burton <laughs> damn <laughs> well the um well, we covered back in the ussr the next track would be um dear prudence and that, that's one of my favorites off of this album that is a very I, I mean that's been covered so many times by so many other phenomenal people like the dead and oh yeah um i only recently found out that uh because i'm not like a huge i just don't know much about them fish sure um but i i just recently found out that there's a entire live album dedicated to covering the entire white album yeah and and, and fish uh in in the dead and a lot of jam bands for that matter um you know that that was a staple um Fish has an album that's like Halloween 94, 95, um, one of their albums where uh, they, the, their version of Dear Prudence, now it's Fish, so it turns into a, like a 15-minute thing, right? But <laughs> but it's really good. Um, and, and Dear Prudence, I mean, it's a great song because it's, I mean, it's a great song because it's the Beatles, but it's a great song for several other reasons. I mean, the first is there almost is no deeper meaning. I mean, it was written about Prudence Pharaoh, yeah. who was Mio Pharaoh's sister and was in India. And she got really into the meditation and became reclusive. And they would literally sing this at her to try and get her to come out and interact with people. Mm -hmm. So dear Prudence, won't you come out to play? I mean, is the literal sentiment. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not like, man, I wonder what this means. It's yeah. like, yeah, no, they're trying to get someone named Prudence to get off their ass and get, get out, and get play out the door. And, um, in that the finger picking style that John uses, um, for a lot of the backing, uh, mm -hmm. lead track, mm -hmm. that was to bring it around a little bit. That was taught to him by Donovan of all things. Oh, 
that that style of finger and I'm not a virtuoso, so I can't I can't be like, oh yeah, no, it's this particular technique, but it was something that Donovan knew and used and taught to John Lennon. Mm-hmm. And uh so John Lennon wrote that. And um yeah, I mean it's it's pretty crazy because there's no deeper meaning. That also was one of the songs that was cut after Ringo had very briefly quit the band. Right. And so Paul plays drums on Dear Why did he quit? Uh, well, for one thing, Paul was being a dick, um, which which is kind of a recurring theme in a lot of their fighting. Well, it seems like because he he was like because whenever you talk, when you watch interviews and people talk about John's personality in the early years, like you know he has fire in his eyes, he had a vision, he was like he he was like inspirational to the dudes. He was inspir like he he was like pushing. He's I want to be the rocker. Like you want to rock too? Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah. But right. he was just super driven. And then they get Epstein and George Martin. You get people that appreciate that and then prime them and keep them going and market them well. And then Epstein dies. George Martin kind of starts to give more creative freedom to them, not in like a slight to himself, but just kind of like y'all y'all have learned more. Y'all know what you're doing. I'll help you translate and compose it and not banging out. But it was. Um, Oh, I lost my track. What were we talking about? Well, but, 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 you know, so John had that intensity. Um, but John, I, I think, was also a little bit more willing to allow other people to explore their own creative boundaries, where Paul kind of had an idea of what he wanted and could be very dictatorial. I think he was also frustrated. Like, but yeah, because you, you lost Epstein, um, then the creative freedom is open ended. They they go with an, another concept, Magical Mystery Tour, falls a little bit flat on the on the certain media in the movie outlet version, which was mainly Paul's right. idea. Um, and then you have again a John Lennon who is more that angsty period where he's not right. really apt to to um, invest. He's just gonna be a part of it. And then um, and then they form Apple, and it's almost like Paul could see the cracks he could see how this could fall apart and then you also at this point i didn't think about this but at this point you're at 67 where he's met okay like neil young who Mm -hmm. you know neil young at post and no it was pre buffalo springfield again he was already ready he was ready to jump ship do my own thing no, 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 no. I don't need producers. I don't need an engineer. You're not going right. to tell me how to do this. I'm going to mix it myself. I don't need Steven Stills. I'm the lead guy. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm sure meeting people like that who had a super group, well, not a super group yet, but you know, had a big group that they found influential. And then they were like, man, I'm ready to do my own thing, blah, blah, blah that he was probably afraid of that. Right. And, 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 and knew that there was money to be made and that there was potential just left on the table if they'd left it alone. And so he pushed, you know, like they, I think it was Ringo said that they would call him mom because he would call their house. Yeah, and, 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 and he said a couple of times he was with John and Ringo's estate. They'd hear the phone go off. And like, that's mom. And he yeah. wants us to come into work. <laughs> yeah. But, but it was because he, he, he knew it gets, again, every six months they were pumping it out. They get off of touring and they slow down a little bit, but there's still the height of, of cultural musical influence. And, 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 uh, I think Paul says this, that he called, he said that they're more like the a cultural, like spokesman of the era. Right. And I, I think he, he had that full awareness and just didn't want to lose touch with that. And I think that's what was the fear of like, we come on, like, let's stay disciplined. Like, let's keep, cause he never, 
never lost that. We're here in 2020. The dude's releasing an album in five days. Right. And, and it's all him. It's all him still, you it know? Yeah. And you got to have someone like that, though. Like, right? Oh, for sure. You got to have somebody that's... Well, but, you know, at the, at the same time, I, I think, um, you know, Paul also had a very specific idea of what things uh, would sound like. And, and you know, I, I think that he had this idea that the Beatles... That you know, the sum was greater than the total of its parts, or mm. the whole was greater than the sum of its parts, or yeah. however that phrase is supposed to be said. The second one, was but great. but he also didn't really trust uh, George and Ringo specifically to contribute like they should have. Mm. And it, you know, on on back in the USSR, which is the song that made Ringo quit for a little bit. Um, you know, they did like 30 takes of that and each one Paul, they would get finished and Paul would say, well, Ringo, I think you should actually play it like this. You're being a little late on the backbeat. And, and Ringo just said, you know what? Screw this and left for about two weeks. And I, I think what's worse is that Paul's immediate reaction from what I've read is, uh, yeah. Okay. Adios. If you don't want to be a part of this, I'll fill in. Yeah. I mean, they weren't touring anymore, and Paul is a competent drummer, right? Well, and that, I think that's the, the balance of, of that development of their egos and their musical talent awareness of like, I mean, like especially some multi-versatile, versatile like Paul, right? Like, uh, yeah, I can keep a beat. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not trying yeah, to. Yeah, I've never heard here, of him playing but, drums before until now. That's wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he's played drums for a few people too, other artists like Steve so Miller. He and, so, yeah. so Ringo actually wasn't the best drummer in the Beatles. Oh, Probably not. <laughs> he, so well, that that well, statement he, was he, meant as if Paul's better. It, it, what what no, makes Ringo so great? <laughs> what makes Ringo so great is that he played exactly to what the song to called. their style. Yeah, yeah I, I mean uh, John Bonham or Mitch Mitchell or Neil Peart or any of the kind of Mount Rushmore of rock drummers would not have succeeded in the Beatles mm. because I, I mean, and and I love Rush and I love Neil Peart, but if you ask Neil Peart to just play a very simple four well, four. Sure. Thing, for a three and a half minute song, I mean, you like know, he would he would have outshined everybody. Not, not that he couldn't have done it. I oh, mean, he's sure. no pert, but, yeah. but but if you break down and you really look at the highlights of what Ringo brought to the composition of some of their most unique stuff, I mean, that's what he mastered. Was not he wasn't some crazy pro jazz artist that knew right. all these crazy time signatures and would put in these like phenomenal things in the background or even bust out a, a Neil Peart style drum, you know, breakdown Phil. in the middle of a song, Phil. Yeah. But, but he would do things that were just, just a little abnormal. Just like I, I could, like you said, I could keep it simple, but like, um, like I'm just trying to think of a, a, a simple ish sounding song that he's doing stuff. That's, it's just different. It's, it's like just, a day in the life I think is the one, uh, a day in the life have something, something, uh, is in a weird time a weird signature, yeah. uh, as is the sun, as is long, long, long on the white yeah. album. Um, uh, I guess your blues, he plays a shuffle, which you know, is not incredibly complicated, but it's not just a four, four beat. But I guess like I'm, I'm thinking more along the lines of stuff because that, that still seems kind of like concrete like foundational to me like i'm thinking more like um ticket to ride where you're like oh yeah where you, where you got kind of the uh, a little jazz stuff but it's just like doom, 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 boom. like it's just like his he's not doing anything that's supposed to be rocky right he's turning it into a um kind of like a an extra spice onto the, just the melody, the flow of the song. It's like, I'm not sure doing here to keep timing anymore. I'm not just the timekeeper. I'm here to 
add a little finesse, add a little, you know, it's like if you're going to look at a song, not linear, like on a linear line and watch the waveform, but you're going to look at it as a 3D thing that can move on a multiple axis. It's like he wasn't just going to be the straight line on that groove and they stayed on that groove. Right. He was going to move with it. That, and that's what he did different as a drummer. Um, or it makes it so appealing um, in his style. And it, again, makes him perfect for them is because right. that's what they were masters at is communicating through their instruments and not not falling in line with a simple foundational root of rock, you know, not every time. Um, but for him, and I know he's got basic songs. Okay. Really quick. I'm not saying he, <laughs> everything he did was a little weird and yeah, different yeah, yeah. than anyone yeah. else, but I will, I will never agree if anyone's like, you know, and he was, he's over, you know, he's over hyped or anything like that. He's like, no, he, I'm not just, and I'm not just going to say he was the perfect drummer for the Beatles. I, I, I want to say that he, he was perfect in having his own weird style that mm -hmm. fit their growth. And as they learned how to become even weirder, he learned how to follow them and knew their personality. Like, you know, like, like me, like in my band, like we've, we've played and we're primarily just a jam band, but we played together for the like last five years. And the first few years, there's a lot of, a lot of learning a lot of nuances and niches we realize like oh why do you stop right there like right. you notice you have this habit that like when we're doing this you're almost done with the measure but then you stop really short for some reason like yeah i don't know why i do that and you just get used to it and then whenever right. we're just throwing something out and you do that weird habit now i'm aware and i can catch it and stuff like that and so that's, that's why i feel like that's what's great about ringo is he he didn't try and change their trajectory he's like let me let me just add a little something you know without again having to do some kind of crazy fill and, and whatever it, uh, you know I, I think if you listen to the ballad of john and yoko which is another song where paul played the mm -hmm. drums i i think that that is the song that you can listen to and you can hear that that's not ringo yeah because i, I mean that the, there's nothing wrong with the beat the beat is on time i mean it's it's you know it's a four four beat um but it it it's missing some sort of weird ringo flair um and and i think that's when in, in in the songs that paul played drums um you know after the beatles with steve i can't remember which song it was he did my right? darkest hour was it my darkest hour okay and then you know on his um unplugged album he plays drums and sings on a cover of ain't no sunshine mm. and it just it sounds like someone who knows how to sit at a drum kit and knows how to play a beat doing that but you yeah. know it's 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 not like they're Dave Grohl where they're actual like virtuosos yeah, at sure. multiple instruments. It's Paul was a great guitarist and a great songwriter, great piano player, and he was an adequate drummer. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and to me, especially because like I, I play multiple instruments and it's been a um, it's been a, a it's been progress. You know, it's been practice and discipline to get to get better. But then I could always fall back on general patterns and understanding just timing and and um, and placement of certain things. And once I understood what I was working with, whether it was a drum set or keys or or a guitar, it, I just look at the overarching general pattern. You know, if I don't technically know what I'm doing, just follow a pattern and I'll get you there. And and especially like with McCartney at this time period starting to um i mean they're all starting to kind of i feel like tuck things away write things and, and figure things out because i mean um on this album you also had um uh, what other songs that they try and flesh out that would come way later like across the universe um lady madonna 
Um, there was another one. I'm sorry. I want to try and figure out which one that. that no, it's fine. And, and you know, they're in going back to George. There were oh, junk. That yeah, was, junk. that was the main one. The main McCartney one. I'm thinking right because he doesn't release that until McCartney won. Right. And um, and so I feel like this is the beginning of him kind of using that concept over every aspect of music production and be like, as long as I can find that pattern I want, that flow I want, then I can do it. I can just bang it out, try it, right. do my best. Right. And um, because yeah, McCartney won, that's all home recordings. That's all him recording stuff, getting in the studio, mixing it. Cause he had like a little four track um, right. and would do everything and then bring it back and flesh it out. But I feel like that's the beginnings of him. Like I can do this, you know, I'm, I'm super dedicated, you know, and I can, I can do this. If you want to leave, leave, I'll do it. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree. And, and just like, um, you know, piggies and Savoy truffle is, is kind of, you can hear kind of the ancestors, um, to all things must pass with George. Mm. And, you know, as you go through the white album and let it be an Abbey road and you can hear George grow as a songwriter. And then when all things come, uh, must pass comes out, you know, you can recognize that a lot of those songs, evolved from this period um and 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 i agree i I think that that's the same thing that happened with paul and and you know as he released mccartney one and ram and you know going forward yeah because i mean he had so much stuff he had so much content i mean they all did during that trip and post that trip ringo (laughs) (laughs) but but then but then it's like they they didn't know what to expect of what would what what would be next. You know, am right. I going to bring this to the table for Get Back, and then now it turn to Let It Be, and now I don't want to put as much on it. And then we're going to do Abbey Road, and like maybe it's more cohesive composition. Let's build it together, and it's not just what something I've been sitting on. I want to hold on to that because this may be the end. And then you get to his stuff with Linda and Wings, and then that's that 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 little period, and that was like two years or two and a half years of that writing. I mean, my McCartney, you, if you find like the home recordings and stuff that they released, you realize the timeline that he's been sitting on this stuff. It was like, right. it was during this period. He just, he sat on it and, and it's been waiting. And then, uh, you know, maybe come as late as Red Rose Speedway of, you know, 72 or whenever that was. And just like, it's just, it's very interesting, especially as a, a music listener realizing like, like the artist perspective of like, oh, I've had this, you know, or especially like George. I mean, George, that's one of the biggest ones with right. all things must pass. Cause coming through with this freaking triple album yeah. of like, here's all this shit I've been sitting on. And it's amazing, by the way, it's not just like yeah. B side bullshit right. know, that he's going to throw in and be like, oh, I just wanted to get, get on the craze. <laughs> but it was, it was like, it was just phenomenal. Um, and then mastered by the, the, the master weirdo, uh, specter. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, oh, it, I didn't know he produced all things. All things most most wow. And that, that's such a um, because he he I, and uh, you will know this offhand better than I will. But did he also produce Abbey Road? Phil Spector? No, he didn't. Okay. He did. Let it be. He. That's right. That's so right. He he didn't originally do Let It Be. It, it was gonna be it was gonna be Martin as always, but for right. Get Back. And I think when it was because because Let It Be was originally gonna be called Get Back, and it was gonna be an out al- a movie about making an album, right? And it's about getting back to your roots. And um, and then when it started to kind of fall apart, and it didn't know what it was gonna be, and then uh, then they released it, and it didn't go very well. And they were gonna mix and release the album. I, I if I'm, I'm remembering this right, that they 
they gave it to Spectre because it was some kind of um, someone knew someone, and he worked for the Marvelettes. In fact, I think he was married to one of them. Yeah, um, and and you know Alan Parsons was a was a sound engineer for Phil Spectre. Oh, really? Yeah, and then and they had that whole wall of sound thing, and and you know Let It Be is is a fine album, but I, to me, listening to it, it sounds overproduced. Right. Well, and, um, and then you know Let It Be Naked came out. Yeah, and it was it was the stripped down versions that to me sound more like the Beatles, mm. and, and not that. I mean, if you listen to Get Back or Let It Be, I mean, you know, obviously those are Beatles standards. But, yeah. you know, if you listen to some of that, like, hey, Bulldog on the Let It Be that was released is overproduced compared to the hey, Bulldog that's on Let It Be Naked mm. to me. Um, is that on that? It, well, it was on. Yeah, I think so. No, now you now you got me doubting myself, but you know I think you should doubt yourself. Okay, well if I should, that's okay. <laughs> but either way, you know so a lot of the I don't know Phil Spector. Yeah, it's just a yellow uh, submarine. Was it yellow? Oh yeah, it was yellow submarine. Uh, but was it not? I thought it was. Well, it doesn't matter because I thought it was re-recorded during the. I don't think because so. I, I thought there was a. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I feel very stupid. Uh, I, it Don't. was not. It's all right, man. We'll let it you slide. You got a lot of knowledge in there. Uh, no, it, well, no, it's it's not a lot of knowledge. It's just a lot of crap. That's it's 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 like it's like trying to find the one pair of scissors in your drunk junk drawer. I think is what it is. But um, no, I I was sitting there saying, uh, "Hey, bulldog," and I was thinking of two of us, uh, oh, which yeah, is yeah, not yeah, yeah. even close to the same song. So <laughs> if you yeah. can edit that out, that would be appreciated. But uh, so, um, I've never been shy about being an idiot. So. <laughs> no one should be. <laughs> I agree. Um, <laughs> but um, but no. I, I, now that I think about it, I think it was a decision by um, Klein, by their new yeah. manager, yeah, um, um, Alan Klein, Alan who would Klein. who would take over, and that was a big abrasive thing move for McCartney. He did not like that. Yeah, because um, was he New York based in, in Klein? Of, yeah, I think I think yeah, I think he's America based, but he was like um, he was just less. If I remember right, he was just a little less more less involved because he was spread thin he had the stones and someone else and it just wasn't as um close of early it was just it didn't feel the same it didn't feel the same like I, I it's almost like it fell back in line with the traditional like no you know listen to the producer he's gonna finish this it is not your call you know you make the main content but they're gonna be the one to flesh it out sure um to which to the concept of like those um well, the real let it be, or the 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 original let it be of where you hear those little like boom and the sound check and the random like talkings and stuff like that. Like all of that was not organic. A lot of that was spliced and, and right. put before then the sound like they're queuing up to make it sound like they were making an album because that was the original concept. So I think that's right. what they did. It's like let's get Spectre in here and let's marry the concept of a Beatles album and the, this other concept of how the Beatles make an album and then let's just you know you bookend it with those little um snippets and some b-roll and let's uh let's make that the concept this time um but i think that was specter's introduction into their world because then specter did the first two singles for john right and the plastic ono band um, which would be cold turkey and um instant karma right and then he would do the plastic ono Spit, uh, uh, band and then imagine and then now and then all things must pass. I remember for waking this Friday and we were talking about it. he's getting released twenty twenty three. Oh really, Phil? 
He'll be like 85 or something. Wow. He'll come out ready to produce tons yeah, of what, ideas. That's what I was going to say. He's going to come tons out of lyrics. and he's like, all right, Ringo, let's do it. <laughs> I've, been, I've been writing for 19 years in the clink and I'm ready to go. Uh, he's he's going to like add some screaming to someone's track. So where'd this come from? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. The, the, you don't yeah. need to know where that screaming came yeah. from, but it really adds to the song. Bill Spector. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting dude. But... Um, how did we get on him? But <laughs> well, going back through the tracks, so like after Dear Prudence, you have Glass Onion, mm. which was which was one that was written by John specifically uh, to throw off the people that were yeah. analyzing their music yeah. for mess with the conspiracy people. Yeah, and the the whole the walrus as Paul was just some nonsense crap he threw out. Yeah. Well, and again, I feel like that's again in line with probably conversations he's had with fans and other oh, people yeah. that you know, like you know, is this that you know? It's like it's nothing. It's like you know, it's it's just it's just <laughs> art. I'm just it doesn't have to be something you know, or or, or uh, it's the, the obsessed people that would you know talk to them like you know, or say like I love you and like. You know, what like you don't know me you know and like just that annoyance. oh yeah the the craziest story that i've heard and in, in this I, i've never been able to corroborate it so this is complete conjecture <laughs> okay and probably not worthy of airing but um i heard i had heard from someone who was who kind of was uh a shoe in to the deep beatles knowledge for me hmm. And they said that when he first moved to New York, when John first moved to New York, okay. you know, he would take walks around Central Park and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And people would stop him and ask him questions. And someone actually said, hey, when you wrote, I want to hold your hand, was hand code for a marijuana cigarette? <laughs> Someone actually thought, I want to hold your hand was like John being like, hey, man, pass me that spliff. Oh, and, wow. Oh, what in the world? Such a, well, such a reach. I, well, I here, here's here's a link, though, that maybe this is where it comes from. It's because, you know, um, I think it was the first reason why Dylan had a, 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 a idea to really want to meet them. Right. because he thought in that song when it says, uh, um, I can't hide. Like, right. I can't hide. I can't hide. He thought it said, I get high. Yeah. I get high. And, and so he brought that up to them like, Oh, it's not what it says. Um, so I wonder if maybe that's where that fan did the same thing. And we're like, what are you talking about? You're getting high. Maybe so. Yeah. That, that is my favorite. That's my all time so favorite random. piece of musical <laughs> trivia though, is that Bob Dylan met the Beatles. Like, Hey man, there's this substance called pot y'all should try it yeah <laughs> and you know it's like some random dude from minnesota meeting these four dudes from liverpool at some swanky party in new york or something like that and he's like hey man i got some joints rolled you want one no we want infinity yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like, we so boring yeah. <laughs> do you have any benzedrine that would be better <laughs> um i'm not hyped up enough. <laughs> <laughs> but well then of course he gives them weed and then um out comes rubber soul and revolver so you know uh, well, and, and really, I guess, I guess help was part of that too. was post Dylan. It's like Dylan's like, I'll introduce you to the weed. You introduced me to electric guitar. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. It's like, I want to get booed at the Newport jazz festival. Will you please give me, <laughs> teach me how to use the electric guitar. What's uh, y'all's opinion on, I think it was that, um, the Jack White, um, Oh, it might get loud. Yeah. He says in that when they kind of profile Jack that, um, you know, because he apparently has like never smoked weed in his life, never done any drugs, like just alcohol only. And he talks about um, they were joking around about if like you take away all drugs from the Beatles history, like all drugs, how much 
of their career would have been different and would it have been better or worse or like they would literally mm. never have released a song (laughs) no well i'm serious i mean going i mean going back to hamburg and then also at the cavern club in liverpool i mean it was just uppers being washed down with beer i mean if Mm. if you really want to i mean you can't I, i don't know this i've never tried it but I would be willing to bet that you can't play music for 20 straight hours right? <laughs> unless you have some sort of um, Stem- external chemical working yeah. for you. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, but if you listen to uh, even on that anthology DVD that we were talking about earlier, they talk about how um, cutting their teeth in Hamburg and at the Cavern Club helped them. Um, not only develop the sound that would eventually show up on the records, but those first years touring and handling uh, the big crowds and the yelling yeah, and, and feeding off that, um, you know, in, in Europe and in the United States and even, um, you know, other places, you know, they played Japan and Thailand yeah. and all that kind well, of stuff. I think they, they talk about how that did help them get ready and build little habits like stage habits, like their, their constant body movement was because you might not be able to hear me. So I'm going to constantly move my head sure. and do it like dramatically. So you can, you can tell like what, where what's I am, on. no matter what's yeah. going on, no matter when you can't hear me for three minutes straight. You know? Right. Um, because yeah, because, because that's what they would talk about is like the, the technology wasn't there. Yeah. Right. These big Vox amps behind them that can only get to the first, you know, hundred people. Yeah. And the people after that, it's just, <laughs> yeah. One of the first live videos I ever saw in my life was the Shea stadium performance. Mm. And I forgot where I saw it somewhere. And like, that one's probably weird. my mom. Well, it's, I just remember being so annoyed. Cause like, you can't even hear like no, shit yeah. really, because it's just, oh, yeah. and then they cut to girls in the front row. Oh, yeah. And then you just see them kind of. Well, and that one's kind of unique because they tried to fight back mm-hmm. that, that really? screeching, because, oh, but they tried to fight back by not, you know, amping up their amps, but yeah. by putting it through the, um, um, like the announcer yeah. uh, speakers oh, for like the baseball park. Wow. And Probably so it's all grainy and weird. And yeah. Worst. But, but oh, it's, it's like, they're like, it's only at that time, the modern leg up. It's it's like, let's use the, st- the whole stadium as our speaker. Like, yeah. Okay. Terrible <laughs> idea. No, it, but it's it all is, you have. It, it is hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's like the same voice that said, ladies and gentlemen, now pitching Tom Seaver. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was, uh, I guess Tom Seaver didn't play for him back then, but, um, yeah, no, in, in the, the amps that they did have, you know, Vox specially built them, yeah. but they had the same like noise amplification technology that's in like a seven dollar bluetooth stereo you buy at target now. oh yeah. yeah i mean it's well i'm sure one of those big towers they had back then might be comfortable still that sometimes a little smaller scaled now just yeah. because of technology yeah. advances one of those one of those little belt loop amps like jack black <laughs> yeah. has he's full of the best. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you ever see um Oh, I know you're a Neil fan. Yeah, you, uh, you know uh, Live Rust. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I love that out. Well, and and um, um, what's the other the the, the regular one? Um, just r- oh yeah, uh, Rust Never Sleeps. Yeah, Rust Never Sleeps. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. Um, I love the album covers of those because you get to see those massive Fender amps behind them that are literally like eight foot tall or something. They're just like humongous, and it's just like yeah, because I'm you know because I'm I'm a sound guy. Right. Um, 
nice install speakers for theaters and, and oh, homes cool. and all sorts of stuff. And I'm just in churches and I'm just so used to the modern solutions of like the small pivoted speakers stacked and tiered and put in the right, you know, dynamic angle, blah, blah, blah. but then, or, you know, you have the right small monitors and there's, just, you don't just don't need these massive things. And then you look at the, that old, uh, uh, pictures of Neil on that, on that tour and he's got these huge fender amps behind him, just massive. And it's just like, that's crazy. It's oh, just yeah. like, it's just and phenomenal to think about that. I, I just finished reading a book about the Grateful Dead and it was talking about, um, when they first started doing very large tours in, uh, the early seventies, 70, 71, 72, hmm. You know, they were getting this following and sometimes they were playing to 50 or 60,000 people. But the technology back then, um, you know, the, there were, you know, the sound traveled 100 feet that mm -hmm. stopped. And what they figured out, they hired a, um, you know, a team of people to assemble what they called the wall of sound that is not related to Phil Spector's <laughs> wall of sound. Um where they would, instead of putting, you know, a million amps all stacked one or two high, mm -hmm. they would have everything stacked really, really, really high. And so like Phil Lesh, who was the bassist for the Grateful Dead, his amp stack, it was 13 or 14 amps, but it was 32 feet high. I mean, that's how they stacked it because uh -huh. someone uh, told them, look, sound waves will travel further well, if they're higher up. They, you well, know, less, like whatever. I was saying before, the dynamic angle of it, like the, right. like I was saying, like when we would install those pivoted speakers that are stacked on each other for, for churches, that's what we're doing. We're putting them way up high, the, as high as we can. And then they're curved. They're like angled down towards you. Right. So it's going to, pepper the entire crowd with an even dispersion rather than uh than um being ground level and having to work its way through bodies yeah because it's going to affect it like yeah. over time well that's you know that's the, the grateful dead did that everyone had a stack um you know then they preached environmentalism even though that took enough electricity to like power toledo ohio for a week <laughs> checkmate hippies but um <laughs> no it, it was um yeah, it's just crazy that really not that long ago uh, in the grand scheme, just the technology just sucked. I mean, there's, there's not a yeah. better word for it. It just yeah. it was just inadequate. Yeah. You don't like the Grateful Dead, right? Uh, I mean, I do. I don't have a problem with them. Yeah. I, I just don't have like a insane like catalog knowledge. Sure. That's yeah. a, it, the, someone someone said that we are just now getting to a generation of Grateful Dead fans that are like yeah i like them like but before it was like no screw that or like you don't listen to them i'm gonna kill you like we're just now getting to kind of the moderate interest grateful dead generation now i i will a disclaimer i will be open about this um i'd never like my dad wasn't like really into them honestly um and he was like my musical conduit like for most of my life um he still is but he uh he wasn't much into it and i never had like a friend that was like a deadhead um until like college and yeah. and and like what you brought up before the studio albums i would try and like like um i'm just trying to think of some of the big ones like you know trucking and yeah Chicken american Street. beauty which is on yeah, um yeah, or trucking is on yeah. american beauty uh, that's 
that and Terrapin Station and maybe Shakedown Street. Um, yeah, that's the other one. Yeah, that's about as much of the studio but catalog I, I can handle. And but it didn't like really like resonate or like stick with me. Right. Um. And then I, and then I was also explained by that guy that that the fan that you know it's much more of a live thing. You know, is oh you got to experience them or listen to the right live album. Same as like fit all oh, the yeah. fish bullshit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so many but, people worship fish, and but this guy that worked with in college, he's like. He had three thousand fish songs on his phone alone. Wow! And he was like, just just jam after jam. And same thing. It was like, yeah, this is November fifteenth, nineteen. Like, oh, yeah, this is ninety three in Ithaca, New York, and Cornell. <laughs> yeah, but but the thing is, is is I never really had a um a want to like I, I don't know I I they just never really jived with me. But then um, um when I got married a couple of years ago, a buddy of mine his his um his wedding gift to me was a, a tickets because he he he's a huge deadhead, and so he was coming to Dallas to see Dead and Company, mm-hmm. um which was uh, he had Mayor yeah and, John Mayer playing the Jerry Garcia role <laughs> yeah and then a uh, Prince's bass uh, mm-hmm. player he was in there and um. And I was like, yeah, dude. And it's like, I'd love to go. And so we, we went. And then when I experienced them, like, you know, like we were saying, taking a song and turning it into a 15-minute jam right. and just get going all over the place. Like, no, like, I, I, I can definitely understand, especially if the, the audience is on something. It's being like. <laughs> it's like if I'd say you just, have to you be know, on something to enjoy it. Yeah. Which, and I have heard that, too, about both of those bands, Fish and Grateful Dead. It's like, <laughs> oh, you won't get it until you're, you know, you've, you've taken something. Like, <laughs> what if you don't want to invest that much and you just want to yeah. hear? Like, well, you just go to the concert. I just want to hear two <laughs> minutes of sober. Are you good? And, I, I but, tell my wife it's perfect because I love live music, but I hate people. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like in, in, in when she's gone, because I, I, I mostly work from home these days, um, you know, me and 400 million other people. But um, Hey, let's not get political. We said we wouldn't get political. <laughs> yeah. Let's not. No, no I, I, I won't get political. But, you know, it, it's I, I can put on a live album and I can kind of put myself there. I mean, mm. I can't because most of the music I'm listening to came out you know when my parents were in elementary school but, <laughs> um but you know i can kind of get in that spirit of like oh man yeah being here being at the the starplex in dallas just you know sweating your private parts off in the july heat but kind of getting lost in it i'm like yeah i can kind of put myself there but guess what i don't have to deal with people that don't realize you have to take your shoes off when you go through security yeah um <laughs> Uh, yeah, airport security and concert. Can, ugh, anyway, but, um, you know, I can put myself there without uh, having to deal with people so much. So it's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I'm just misanthropic like that, but I'd, I'd like to think that. Yeah, <laughs> something yeah, like that's that. more, more agoraphobic. Yeah, but <laughs> it's it's just, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, well, life goes on. It does. Yeah. Obla de obla, <laughs> as they say. But yeah, I don't know how too much more to mention about that one because that would be next just a, everyone hated it except for paul <laughs> i mean what the hell is that song about it's a i mean it's, it's just, about it's a, it's a story song about yeah. a man meeting a woman in a marketplace and then uh you know, just a life just it's literally just developing life but again th- this is again maybe not the beginnings because he was always in that like lovey-dovey good wholesome you know content kind of mindset but 
it, it, it definitely carries through with that kind of, I mean, especially with, I don't know, to me, it's interesting that he's talking and he's talking about building a life and meeting the right person, getting married, blah, 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 right. When he meets the person that was like his, his, like his everything. Right. Um, cause I don't know. Cause, cause I know you don't know like a lot about Linda and, and mm. Paul, mm. but like, I mean, I mean, the dude cried for like a year straight when she died. Like, like he, he, he still, that was his longtime wife. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just like the, his best friend through and yeah. through. She wrote, she was like, they were like writing oh, yeah. partners, right? Oh yeah. yeah. And his second wife looked a lot like Linda. Yeah. But acted nothing. Like, what yeah. year, what years was he married to? Barely Linda? had a leg to stand on. <laughs> Is that she have one leg? Oh, I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you just lost some sponsors. I know, but he, he, I think just recently someone asked him like in an interview if he regrets that marriage and he's like, oh yeah. Like he said it like real <laughs> fast. So, like, so he, him and Linda are married for a while oh, and divorced from, no, they never divorced. Oh. Never yeah, she, she, died she died of cancer. cancer. Yeah, she. They got married. Oh, that's they right. got married. Prematurely, right? Kinda prematurely. Oh yeah, I mean, of cancer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But she, she's fifty years. Oh, I mean, if she wasn't like old. Oh no, no, no. no. This, this is mid nineties, ninety four, I think. Oh god. So he, they got married the day before Lennon, or the day after. Or was it just the same week? It was something like that. Yeah, it was the same week because Lynn and Yoko got married in Gibraltar, right? I think so. Yeah, and I, th- I think I think Paul and Linda got married like Liverpool in, in, in Liverpool. Like maybe maybe Lennon got married like on a Wednesday because that would be a very John Lennon thing to do. <laughs> so what's the most inconvenient day for people? Um, <laughs> I don't have anything and, going on. And yeah, I think Paul got married like in a Saturday in a church with classic know, Anglican choir. Yeah, <laughs> but he. Uh, yeah, because I think his family was like involved in that church. Or yeah, they, like yeah, that. they were the the big. Uh, um, I I don't know if they call it Anglican, but you know the Church of England, I guess yeah. that was in. But they, so they they married. That was sixty eight. I think so. Yeah, uh, sometime, and uh, and yeah, and she died in ninety four, and then the year before she died, um, McCartney produced a solo album for her, and she did like all these like elaborate crazy animation like music videos that accompanied it and it was like it was crazy she's a very expressive unique person and it was just mccartney it, it she was very wholesome like the 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 relationship and friendship that they had it wasn't like um i do this you do that or like i'll give you this if you give me that which kind of was like that with john you know a yeah. lot it was just like full wholesome, like, you know, cause she, she came from another marriage, you know, they were, she, she had a, a daughter when, when they met and, um, and he just fell in love and he's like the, the thought of building a family together and, and, and it just, I don't know. It's just crazy. Like when you, whenever they talk about each other or anything, it's just, it's literally just sounds like. I don't want to make it sound all fairy tale, but it, cause <laughs> yeah. it does yeah, I mean, right, literally right, like, yeah. and, and the thing is, and the reason why it's just, and it's so in, intoxicating to me is because I don't know when I look at McCartney, I see someone that he's, he's seen like it all or seen like a lot. And so for someone, a photographer from Arizona coming to a press conference and for Sergeant Pepper and they meet and hit it off. And then he just becomes obsessed with her, her wholesome character after experiencing so much shit. And it's probably just like, this is the cleanest, nicest person, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, and, and I think because he dated, um, 
Jane oh, Asher. Yeah, yeah, Asher, mm-hmm. uh, who was kind of a, a an English socialite and came from, um, if not, uh, were they secretly dating? Was yeah, it? it was kind. Of, yeah, there was something. Um, but it was out in the open right before they broke up. Um, but, yeah, but she was. I, I think maybe she was from a family that had a peerage, so you know it was like the fourteenth Duke of Sheffield or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and she had her own thing, but Linda Eastman, which was her maiden name, um, you know, she came from money. Like her, her folks had money, and I think was it her dad or brother briefly uh, co-handled their finances, the Beatles' finances with mm-hmm. Alan Klein, but. Linda Eastman didn't want to, she didn't want to ride the coattails of her family's wealth. And I, I, uh, the impression that I get is that Paul liked that she was both from money, but independent because that told him that she was not, you know, after money or status or whatever. She was, she was just someone who loved him and he loved her. And that's the way it is. When you can look at her own content, like her own artistic content of her photography, particularly of, cause like I have her photo book, the McCartney big one. Right. And you get to see like, I mean, it's her highlights, but you get to see the, the early stuff. And like when she started to meet all these big groups and all the different types of people they were around. And, um, it just seems like she, she was she was very expressive. Didn't want to go down some kind of like um, expected path, and just wanted to you know experience things. And um, but anyways, um, so the reason why we even touch on that is Obla oh, Diobla Dot being a simple story of like a man, a woman, you know, just falling in love, building that life, blah blah. blah. I just feel like it's like that's the he's primed for that you know and then they just take off and and ram is just a um it's an opus to that it's an opus to their love of just expressing like like it's just so cohesive and it's just them it's just them and it's just so it's it's so it's beautiful How, how did his second wife lose a leg <laughs> I, I really don't know. Yeah, not to ruin the mood of I, beautiful marriage. It's beautiful what you said, Russell. Don't let me take that away from you. But I don't know. I really don't know. I, was I don't about know much about her. Ben's macabre joke throughout the whole thing. Yeah, he would say that. I kept myself from learning more. You, you would think that in prepare, I would have tried to get a leg up on that kind of stuff, but I didn't. But yeah, Obladi Oblada. John and George both hated it. Um, yeah, John called it, and I'm quoting here, Mom, uh, Granny music shit and then you know george has a throwaway kind of Wait, that's line. what john called that's it? what john yeah. called yeah. Obladi Oblada. and then george has kind of a throwaway line in savoy truffle where he says you know uh, we all know Obladi Oblada. um then there's another like, line can't can't it's yeah stuck you can't in your head it's you annoying yeah and uh and then you know and plus it it was I mean, it was it was Paul's version of kind of British, you know, Anglo-Saxon reggae. <laughs> and I think that if you were a, fran- a fan of, you know, reggae in a purest form, uh, it was probably a little upsetting to hear. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like when you hear like UB40 sing Red Red Wine a little bit. <laughs> You're like, oh, hey, this is fun to listen to, but sure. this is not reggae. Um, <laughs> well, the only other thing I know about that track is the uh, the opening. They didn't know how to open it. They had worked. They had done like a few takes. And they didn't. They knew what the whole song was, but they did not know how to start it because they didn't want it to just be a simple like you know power chord you know just strumming thing and uh and so like you said john didn't like it 
but he was expected to come in for some uh, something else to to record something else. And so when he comes in, and he came in late, naturally. Um, <laughs> they they tell him, you know, you know, like, what, what, what are we working on? I'm like, oh, we're working on Oblidiovada. We have it all fleshed out, but we just don't know how to f- start it. And then literally, first thing he does, sit down at the piano. And that's the first thing he does. Is, <laughs> dun, 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 And then that's it. And Classic. that's the beginning. <laughs> he was like, hey, if we get this song finished can quicker, I can get up. some heroin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Drugs are awaiting. <laughs> then, uh, so from Oblidio Wild Honey. you get Wild Honey Pie, which was another song that John didn't like much of paul's and it uh it's a paul solo work yeah there are no other beatles associated with yeah. it and it's 52 seconds of avant-garde whateverness it's but like it's like country avant-garde. It, it, it and it's it's kind of vanilla you know like oh yeah I, I it's think, very simple yeah and I, I think you and i can agree that revolution nine is um a a Perhaps more serious uh, avant-garde oh, experiment. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why I, I, it, I'm, it makes me curious if um, where that comes from, like the that, that wanting to play that weird style, because that that weird like ding, bing, that weird twing, twangy noise, but then right. over a, a simple guitar, like that. That's very to me. It's very early Wings Ram like. Yeah. So I feel like that's him. Um, because that's the thing, like on Ram, his style, beca- well, especially Wildlife, the first Wings album, he's much more, um, I don't want to say expressive because I've said that so much. He's, he's much more um, like himself. You can see he is exuding the styles that he grew up on, the crooner shit, the, um, the, the some, not doo-wop stuff. But, you know, it's like he, he's getting back into certain roots and then he's learning new stuff through through Linda and America and folk music and country music. and, and it. But he, he merges them like he would always do. Yeah. And and I feel like that's what Honey Pie is. It could have been, it's been a simple, like, folky, simple short song, but then that little twangy and the like the weird tone that he uses instead, it just brings out that more vibrant possibility of what the simple song could be in a weird way. Right. You know? and that's what Ram is kind of like to me. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, if you jump from wild Honey Pie to just Honey Pie, oh, yeah. um, you know, Honey Pie, another Paul work. Um, it, it, it's what, uh, in, in England, they call it music hall style here in the States. We would call it vaudeville style. Oh, okay. Um, but, and you know, if you listen to honey pie, you know, honey pie, um, I mean, it's, it's, you can picture, you know, like a flapper girl dancing yeah. to that. Right. And, um, and a little shimmy shank. Yeah, exactly. With all the little frilly beads hanging <laughs> off the layers of the dress. And, uh, you know, and I, and I do think that that's another kind of insight that was, uh, you know, foreshadowing a little bit of, uh, Ram and McCartney and McCartney two and the wings album. And he's showing so. his influence. Yeah, his yeah influence. exactly. It's like, uh, your mother should know. Like, yeah. Another one. That. Cause that, that's another one that sounds like what you're saying that vaudeville kind of flapper feel, but then it's got this eerie tone mm-hmm. to it. So like this one's got that weird twangy, like, what is that? Like it just puts you in a different level of like music, you know, understanding of like, what is it? Instead of it just being a simple guitar and him saying honey pie over and over again, it's like, he had this weird, like, ding, 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 ding. And then we, yeah, 
now with with your mother should know is like that that low harmony like that hum that ooh, like it's right. just like that weird it's like as soon as it starts off you can tell it's kind of old by the timing and the piano shuffle but then that that eerie humming in the background just makes it more like oh what's going on well because like in the movie you know they even make it a weird like dream sequence type yeah. thing so it's like what is this thing <laughs> um it's very strange but again that's the i think that's the genius of mccartney is he knows he knows the formula to make a good song but why don't i take the formula from reggae and the formula from folk and the formula from rock or whatever and just that's just cross over some parts and then now we got something i don't even know what it is but it's mine then <laughs> <laughs> from uh wild honey pie you jump to a song that i like a little bit more every time i hear it yeah. and that is the continuing story of bungalow bill and i i did learn and i, I know you know this story i just want to tell it because it's fun uh so the continuing story of bungalow bill is about a man not named bill his name was actually richard cook and richard cook who went by rick came out to india when the beatles were out there because of all things his mother was a part of the retreat Mm. and rick cook was american and very american probably carrying mcdonald's in an nra magazine with him (laughs) on the plane and he got to India, and one of the first things he wanted to do was go hunt a tiger. Oh. And he actually, because to get into uh, the places where tigers live, you took elephants. And so he rented an elephant and a gun and climbed an elephant and rode into the jungle and then shot a tiger. I mean, it, this there is almost nothing added wow. to the song other than what really happened. Wow. But he came back to camp and was like, hey, guys, guess what I did? I just won World War II and killed a tiger. And John thought it was just a, a bit of an American arrogance thing. And so he wrote this song trying to make Bungalow Bill, a.k.a. Rick Cook. And Bungalow comes from the bungalows they were living in. Right. And and it's it, the song was meant to make Rick Cook look like an American dick. Um, <laughs> well, honestly, now that you're saying that, I feel like a lot of Lennon songs on this album are oh, po- pointed at a lot at, of people. Yeah, I mean, Dear Prudence, Dear Prudence Sexy Sadie, Sexy Sadie with Maharishi, and like yeah, this one, Bungalow Bill, even even little random stuff like uh, what's the one? Like I'm so tired when he talks about uh, Sir Walter. Uh, yeah, R- Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh. Yeah, yeah, the creator of cigarettes. Yeah, by the way, and, really? and that yeah. was and that was another CD. I mean, wow. CD. Good lord. Uh, yeah, that's why because uh, North Carolina is so tobacco yeah. heavy. That's yeah. where the city of Raleigh comes from because it was a Raleigh. tobacco plant. Yeah. Uh, tobacco plantation um that's wild but even i mean yeah i'm so tired was also a direct i mean that was a, that's a song about insomnia he yeah, couldn't sleep he wasn't taking anything anymore yeah and, and, and he mind was just going and, yeah and, and even the you know i wonder if i should call you but i don't know what i'll do or what i know i can remember the lyrics when i hear the music but <laughs> um you know there's there's not much beyond the surface and that i think that's uh whether he meant to or not i don't, I don't want to project these ideas but you know, I think that that's another way of him rebelling against all the people that were like, hey, man, when you wrote, I want to hold your hand. Was that about reefer or almost like I think it's almost more like um, uh, you don't make me. I make me. So right. it's like, you know, right. like Maharishi. It's like, you know what? You you probably got more fame because of me. Yeah. And 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 but I know how you really are. And so I'm I'm just not going to hold back. I'm just going to throw something back at you because I don't. I don't care, but that's how he was, you know, and this is, this is, I guess this is the, um, this is the beginning of what I would call, um, 
the first diss track, you know, habit yeah. in music is because Lennon was the first, we're one of the first people. I mean, there's a lot of people that had um, purposeful lyrics and songs like sure. Woody Guthrie and all sorts of people that were very particular and talking about stances on things. Yeah. But, but I'm particularly talking about a pop star or a celebrity. I'll put it this way. A celebrity pointing out another celebrity and saying he ain't shit or you know yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. stuff like that with yeah. like sexy sadie it's it's harder to tell because he changed the name from maharishi to sexy sadie but like what we're just talking about he's 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 directing these at people with, right. a, with an intent and and what and to me this is the prelude of what you would see the post breakup when he starts to turn on Paul big time right. and he just starts, you know, writing all these brutal things, especially, oh, yeah. you know, how do you sleep was how literally sleep and was a Turkey both. Yeah. I mean, I like, how do you sleep? I'm ready to show me that. Song. Yeah. I mean, that is a laundry list. I mean, it literally, they made a list, put it on their fridge. And every time John or Yoko would think of a slight to Paul, they would write it down on that list and turn it into lyrics. And, 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 and that, that is what, I don't know if it really is the first diss track, but to me, it's like, that's the first diss track. Like in what you would think about, like right now, modern times of a rapper point out another rapper, another right. artist and be like, man, you ain't doing this. And you said that, blah, 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 blah. But that, I mean, this is, that's literally what it was. You had like the height of rock and roll. These two <laughs> kings that just like poking at each other with too many people. But but the thing is, Paul took more of a subtle approach to right. to taking jabs at him. And John was just you know brutal. Yeah. Like even now, you don't see rock bands in beef. Oh, right. It's just right. rap. The rapper, rappers having beef is like. But that was john and that, that just it fits right into that fiery personality yeah. of like like if you're not if you're not getting it then you're not gonna get it and yeah. i just get out of my way <laughs> well it, it had i mean and by the way first off i would feel remiss if i didn't mention that while woody guthrie did write a lot of diss tracks they were all to people who were politically just to the right of like Karl marx because he was such a dirty commie but um you know john <laughs> no politics woody guthrie is a very important person in history but he was a communist and um <laughs> But John Lennon, you know, it, it, you're exactly right. He was more direct. And I think that that was just his personality where Paul was always a little bit um, coy or aloof or nuanced. Or if you market want to aware. Credit. Yeah. yeah and, it's and, probably market aware. And I, I think John didn't care if media outlets saw him as, as a jerk, whereas Paul McCartney yeah. – I mean, you know, this is the guy who went on to record songs with Stevie Wonder and mm. Michael Jackson, and you don't get to that by being John. But I feel like it's an interesting double um, the thing, a feeling, because I get that. But then you also you he maybe this is his first experience of this, like the market reflect you know, or reflecting sure. back is like with Colt Turkey, like people wouldn't play that. And right. he loved it. He thought it was it was fun, a great song, and he was very proud of it and wanted to get it everywhere. And he, I mean, he wrote letters to like the BBC and like other uh, other. He talked about it like publicly. That, you know, why? Why is I, I, he paid for some ad too? Like I'm trying to remember all the things, but he made like a big stink of it because people didn't want to play it. Um, and I think maybe that was his first realization of like marketability, like on his own back, of being like, "Well, I thought it was a good song, but I guess it's too heavy." Maybe I cross some line that's not going to get to the masses and make me money. And, um, well, who knows? But, um, but particularly like, yeah, uh, the, the, the structures and, and his, uh, his perspective, or I guess what the, what the content is aiming towards in this album. Like, yeah, I mean, there's just a few we've highlighted. You can kind of see he's starting to include people 
real people in his writings, not just feelings of like general feelings of love or whatever, right. or, or, or an experience. It's like, I'm still talking to you, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not just like, this was a girl I loved or a past love or a love I hope to get. It's like, this is a real thing and I'm still interacting with you. Right. I'm still Very telling focused. You. Yeah. Yeah. It's intense. And then, the, uh, whose side were y'all on in that whole, the beef? <laughs> the beef? I mean, with, with, uh, with so wasn't it, it was George, it was kind of like George versus Paul <laughs> and also John versus Paul. It was kind of everybody versus everybody. Yeah. It was just Royal, <laughs> Beatles, Royal Rumble. Yeah. Who, who, who's I, side I'm on Eric Clapton's side. No <laughs> <laughs> if you like leaned one way, who do you lean on? I guess, and I only lean this way because I just knew, and I know you could, I, and I could, I could make the same defense either way. Uh, like, like I know Paul was very money minded and he knew like the momentum they had behind them, but I just feel like he appreciated it like on a large scale. Like, cause I always say this to people about the Beatles. Like, if you want me to break down like Paul, John and George's character, George wants to talk about society and how things really are. John wants to talk about society and how things really are. Or no, no. George wants to be spiritual stuff. Very spiritual John is society and he, or, or, or it's either society or he wants to be a rocker. Right. And then Paul is just trying to make new music. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I have always had, and I, I can admit this, I, I'm a great admirer of John Lennon. Um, but I think that one thing that he absolutely a hundred percent did that just really, really, really makes me mad. And it's, I, I mean, and you can go through and you can, you can look at, John Lennon and Jim Morrison and Kurt Cobain and other people who wanted to make music and became wildly successful at it and then got pissed off at all the notoriety they were getting. Yeah. And it's like, look, I understand that it is a very, 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 um, you know, you have a very slim chance of being that successful, but you got to know if it happens, I mean, you're going to have, yeah, <laughs> you're going to have that attention. Yeah. And I agree. It's not fair. Everyone should be able to shut their door at night and live a private life. I, I completely agree with the sentiment, but I mean, you knew what you signed up. It's for. an, it's inevitable. Like it's, if it's, it's going to come. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I feel like that's what speaks to each of their personalities. Right. You know, Paul always was aware of that and kept tabs on that like effect right. and then knew how to play on it. And then John, it just, especially because John was the only married beetle, you know, had a kid, they hid that. You know, like yeah. they didn't tell the fans that he was married. Um, they got brought up in interviews. Like, don't talk about them. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, well, right when they got to the States, someone said, how does your wife feel about this? And Sean said, who? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, literally. I mean, literally. literally thank said, thank yeah. God Twitter wasn't around back then. Yeah, good Lord. They'd be screwed. But, but, but yeah. And, and then with George, I feel like just like, um, maybe someone in life that all they get is, is fight back or they never really get something satisfying back. They never get the reward back that they thought they were going to get, but they just, they take it more on themselves and to reflect on themselves and develop more and just realize like, Oh, I didn't do this right. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to work on myself. And, and so it speaks to his character that his writing would get better and he would, you know, stockpile all this content and then realize, you know, when, as soon as he was free, he would just bust out. Um, but he was just, he, he, he liked reality and he liked to be careful. And, and, and when he realized like, okay, I get it. Paul and John are the leads and they're not going to let me add, add on and it's not going to be doing me any good to fight and fuss or quit or anything. Cause then I'll be out. Right. So let me get better 
And if they don't like it, I'll sit on it. And, and it is particularly, I think it was like around help that he had brought a few songs and it wasn't that they even were critical of it and just didn't like it. They weren't even really trying. They were half listening, you know, and, and, and I think that was the beginning of George keeping more stuff away, being more careful. Oh yeah. And, and if you look and, and this to me says a lot about his perspective, um, up through the date that George died, George, I mean, as far as dollars, record sales and concerts was the most commercially successful Beatle, mm. which blows people's minds yeah. be, because my first thought would be Paul yeah. and, you know, Paul has since overtaken him, but you know, right. Paul's been alive the last 19 years yeah. and George hasn't. Um, but you know, critically everyone, I mean, all things must pass as much hype as it gets. It lives up to it. I yeah. mean, all, all things must pass is a great Great album. Dark Horse is a six, great album. Six-time platinum album. Oh, yeah. And wow. then, you know, he had the concert for Bangladesh that was a huge yeah. deal. Um, you know, he started kind of making crap in the 80s, but then again, everyone did. So Yeah. Well, that's the thing interesting thing about George is because um, I'm iffy on Dark Horse. Like, I like living in the material world, like half of it. You yeah. like it? Because <laughs> um, I think half of it is Spectre. I yeah. Think, or like three or, song, three or four songs. You can kind of tell. But then, but then like... The later albums with George, it's like you can kind of tell that he's not phoning it in, but he's not pushing yeah. himself to form new avenues of music. He's just kind of just growing with it. I, I liked, I didn't start liking Dark Horse until about the fifth time I just sat down and listened to it. Mm. I had no external stimuli. I was just sitting in a room with it. I didn't even have my phone mm. um, because iPhones didn't exist yet. But um, well, I like Brainwashed his very last album. Brainwashed is a good album. But that's the, the Jeff Lynne produced. And, yeah. Uh, well, Jeff, I love Jeff Lynne. Yeah. That's I mean, good. ELO. He's the lead singer of ELO, Brad. Yellow. ELO. ELO. Oh, yeah. ELO. Electric Light Orchestra. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were saying and then, and, you know, and, and plus, George got a George and Jeff Lynne and Dylan and Tom Petty and Roy Orbison uh, got the whole thing from the traveling Wilburys. It was very popular and Tom Petty. And that was all very popular and, and pretty good music for late eighties standards. Well, and really quick, you talking about the commercial success of George or just the financial success right. individually, whatever. I will say this about McCartney because a lot of past Wings members, like in interviews and stuff, they've, they've expressed these like frustrations of of his spending and right. and the because um, him and Linda were really big on the experience of the concert, and that was the the, the that was like the um, progression of concerts in the seventies. Is it's not just music experience; it is like a visual stimulation, and it's all sensation. That's where you know fog machines, lasers, um, background art. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I love all that though. It just adds oh, to oh, that. absolutely. Yeah. But but they they were the, one of the first people to man cash in and invest like big time on that to where they would finish a tour and barely break even. And you know, and he's holding his like I think it was like on the Red Rose Speedway tour his drummer and like bassist, which I think the drummer would eventually be the drummer for dire straits, but mm -hmm. maybe it was the bassist. I can't remember who, but 
like they, they were interviewed saying like that we were on like some kind of minimal retainer, like they were making like $10,000 a year or something, but they're like, but I'm with McCartney, you mm-hmm. know, it's yeah. like, that's what I want. You like, but then after this massive tour, you know, we didn't, you know, didn't even break even or barely broke even. And so we're not making in all this money, but we're, we're churning out some good content, but it just doesn't add up yet. Um, so I know McCartney had, I don't know if you want to call that, you know, bigger eyes in their stomach or what, but I know that his spending was a little weird, but so, I mean, George had some weird spending habits too. Yeah. But I think McCartney's was always for the sake of the spectacle. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, like he, he played, um, he played what was East Berlin, you know, oh, like right. three weeks after the wall came down. Mm. Right. And he was in, you know, he played Moscow when it was, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, still the USSR and then played it again when it was just Russia. Right, and right. so I, I think, and I do think that's foresight. And I think having the whole like stadium experience was something that he developed. Cause if you watch, like if you watch, uh, how the West was won from mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin, you know, great concerts. They're in Los Angeles and they have a huge stage presence, but it's four dudes and some amplifiers. There's nothing right. going on. Right. But you know, if you watch, uh, and you forgive me because I can't remember, but it's like the Wings at the Speed of Sound tour or whatever uh, it was. Wings Across America. It, yeah, Wings Across. Thank you. That's a great uh, it, album and video. Yeah, it's it's a good album. But, you know, that concert tour, that's when they started having lasers um, and, yeah. and, and, and crazy visuals. Like to me, lasers. Uh, and I do love live music dearly, but uh, like I, to me, that would come across as like, OK, at some point this is or what are you trying to hide? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, it, which, what do you mean? It, well, it's like, okay, is there something about the musicianship the music? yeah. that you're trying to cover up mm. with? Like, but and see, it sounds like, and it, I, I know it's see not it that way. Gimmicky. Yeah, right. but see, I see it the complete opposite direction because it falls in line with McCartney's nature of evolution. Right. Of like, okay, no, no, no. We've always got the music. The music is beautiful. We're beautiful. But what's behind us? Uh, this is so boring. Like these giant Fender amps. And the, 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 I don't want that. Can we paint them? Can we get some lasers on here? Can we, you know, can we do something? It's like it enhances an already solid foundation yeah, of music. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll up this again on um, McCartney. Um, that I know he was like an early um, – Again, I have no dates or things of reference here sure. or site. But I know that he's had a long run of making like archive editions, collector's editions, the best stuff. Like he always has turned that stuff out. And um, – and, and nowadays he does it on an anniversary timeline, but it still sells very well. And and I remember, you know, when they would come out when I was younger in the two thousands, with my dad being a collector. But you know, he, he, all, both of us are collectors, but didn't have a lot of money. And then you, you see McCartney comes out with some special deluxe four CD with a book and a poster, and oh, that's the original, you know, handwritten notes and blah blah. And it's two hundred dollars. Like that's two hundred dollars for an album, <laughs> you know. But then nowadays days you have the people those mega collectors that that, that they, they go nuts over that stuff sure or like what you're talking about i like to listen to um smile away but i want the 1971 in glass <laughs> blah, blah 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 it's like now he's even taking that on like it's like i have the the ram archive edition and it has tons of stuff like right. photo scans of the original um handwritten lyrics on the same paper that he did and like That's posters cool. lithographs um an orchestral version of the whole album but it's like I, I, now that I, you know, I want that. Like it, it just becomes like when that came out, I was like, that's awesome. It's like, that, that's literally like my favorite McCartney album. And I want to, 
I want to own that. I want to have that content for those little niche things. So I have an understanding of it so I can appreciate even more. Sure. And, and he's just done it so consistently. And with some artists it's, it's, you know, maybe I'll do a picture disc, maybe I'll do a little thing, but it's like, I don't know. I just find that, that he's always doing that. He's always trying to find that next level to the experience. I do love a good lithograph. I think those are underrepresented in the worlds of, 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 of graphs. Um, <laughs> Quick shout out. To yeah. Lit- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not quite as good as a good daguerreotype, but yeah. uh, getting away. A little deep. photography joke for you there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, are we, are we on why my guitar gently weaves? Yep. Is that what's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's next. Uh, so I, I, uh, I would like your input. I think that this is the most, um, complete song on the album. Um, I I think that it is as close to perfect as this album can get. And, and I know that it's a hit and I know that it's, it's got all the stories and stuff, but you know, first off Eric Clapton doing the uncredited uh, lead guitar on it, which was a complete overdub. He, he was not part of the original, um oh, studio time yeah he they had the rhythm track and everything laid out and if i remember correctly uh you know don't quote me on this but i think that george had tried the solo himself a couple of times mm, yeah I think and, so. and i believe paul wanted to take a stab at it but george was like no let's get eric um which was probably kind of a you know yeah because i think he mentions that he introduced eric as a way to almost not not just not intrude or interrupt normal flow of things, but they had realized the normal flow of things wasn't there right now. Right. So having Clapton in was almost like bringing in a, um, how can I think of How can I say it? Well, it's, it's like, he well, it's like, a friend well, it's like having, thing. well, yes, but I think it was also, um, kind of what you're saying. Like it was a warning shot, like across the bow right. that it was like, you, you know, you're, you're dealing with, with cats, but then you bring in a tiger in the room, you bring right. in a big cat and mm-hmm. that you just can't ignore. It's like, but, He's not one of us. Right. Why would you bring him? Because you know he's good. Yeah. Well, I know he's good, but why is he here? Because you're not doing it. We're not doing it. So we need to do something else. Yeah. Well, we're not enough anymore. Well, I guess not because I had to bring him in. Yeah. You know, and so it's it's, it's a primer. It's like, hello, we're, he, he's good. Yeah. It's like, don't make me get Hendrix. What's he, doing? <laughs> What's he doing here, John? I don't know. Why is your girlfriend here? Yeah. Um, yeah. She's screaming in the background. But, you know, but I think because if, if you listen to the lyrics, I, I think that there's a couple of really interesting things about them. And, and the first is, you know, George had been so focused on kind of uh, Eastern instrumentality. Mm-hmm. Um, he was so focused on the sitar and hanging out with Ravi Shankar, who, by the way, is Nora Jones's biological yeah. father. Yeah, my favorite crazy, crazy stat yeah. there. Um, he was 93 when she was born or something. <laughs> Not 93, but old. Um, but so I, I think, I think some of the lyric is him actually being welcoming to being a, a guitarist again. He was mm-hmm. not, getting into this weird world, Eastern crazy tuning thing. I mean, he was a guitarist, Mm -hmm. but he was so excited to get set up and play the guitar again. And then the, the whole recording of this album was so tumultuous. And I think he was kind of like, guys, can we just, can we just make some music, man? Yeah. And, you know, Ringo got thrown out of the band. Everyone was mad at each other. I mean, Paul was apparently being insufferable. And then Yoko was there, which I'm sure didn't help. Um, And, you know, 
to jump ahead a little bit to birthday, you know, Patty Boyd has, sings backup vocals yeah. on on birthday, and I think that that's probably another kind of shot across the bow. It's like, okay, John, if your girlfriend's going to be here, so you know, my wife's going to sing too. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, I, I think it's, and it's a complicated song. I mean, it's not it's an very easy serious. song to play. And, and I, I think it is, I think it's one of the more introspective songs. I mean, you could argue that maybe like Julia is the most vulnerable song on the album where mm-hmm. it's John talking about his mom and that kind uh, of thing. But I mean, it's, I mean, you just gotta ignore Why don't we do it on their own? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as much as I do love the backstory and Paul's like, yeah, man, I think we should just be it. But, um, but no, I, I mean, George is a very introspective guy and I, I mean, it's a heavy song. It is. And, and you and I, I know, and, and Brad, I don't know how much you've watched, but I know you and I have seen a million things where there's interviews with the band. And, you know, George is always the most introspective and even the stories of when they met Elvis. You know, they talk about how Paul and John were just beside themselves and Ringo was, I don't know, like playing with a Lego set in the next room or something. And, you know, George, George uh, like he, he was too embarrassed to talk to anyone. He he talked to one of Elvis's bodyguards trying to score some weed. I mean, he, he didn't even hang out with Elvis. And I, I think I think having such an open, um, you know, an introspective and revealing song like while my guitar gently weeps from someone like George. And this was really the first time he had been like that. Mm-hmm. He, he would go on to do it more and all things must pass. But I, I think as far as the growth, it represents the complexity of the song, the dynamics of the actual, you know, physical recording of the song. I think it's about as complete and as close to perfect as this album gets. No, it's a beautiful song and it, and it's a, it's, it's very cohesive sounding without you realizing that they are kind of in a weird feel, you know, in a weird state. Um, to me, if I want to parallel it to something he's done at a similar time before he's, you know, coming into this point, it's almost like what you were saying, you know, he had that, that Eastern obsession or whatever, but if you look at a track like within you, without you, I feel like the, the way it's written lyrically, it's the same kind of feeling, same kind of fashion into this, that, that not melancholy, but that's, that's, that's um, sincere, serious, you know, like right. I, I'm, I'm addressing you. And I'm telling you, like, this is a real heavy thing and like not in some like aggressive grand way, but in a George fashion, I'm going to, I'm going to sing it in a, in a light way. And I'm going to sing it like in a somber, real, not gloomy, but you know, just like, you're going to get it. You're going to get how I feel. And it's not just going to be like me telling you how to feel, you're going to feel it, you know, (laughs) um, in one version of this, this is just a random thing. Um, it's, I just, it's the only thing where I really have else to add for this track is, um, I love the, um, the love oh, yeah. version of this song, um, because it takes the original acoustic version right. and then pairs it with, uh, I think it's Giles, um, Martin mm-hmm. that does the arrangement. I think so. And, and does the orchestra and the strings and stuff behind it. And it's just beautiful. Cause if anything, like, cause I mean, Clapton stylizes it and adds, you know, some finesse to it. But that again, I feel like just strips away and you're like, this is again, this is George. It's just that, that real sincere, you know, version of it. Right. No, I, I agree. Yeah. It's a great song. The only other song I would say that um, really competes with it 
um, for me is um, Dear Prudence or like Happiness is a Warm Gun because that one's up there. Thank you for listening. For more episodes, visit our website, musicmythpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Goodbye.